Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your host, Owen Kate, like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Colson, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. Noel, how's it going? Woo! No, it's, it's going okay now that I have a glass of red in my hand. Yeah, it's been a week here. <laughs> it and, has. And so, so this week, uh, listeners, we're doing something a little different. We're we're drinking along with our recording. Hopefully, you won't be able to tell too much of a difference. You'll be able to tell with me. <laughs> but uh, listeners are encouraged to send us uh, rules for a Televerse drinking game. We were going to contemplate that for this and realized we didn't have any ideas really for well, rules we had a few <laughs> yeah my idea was drink um with feminism but that would have just gotten us plastered really and quickly the other idea was drink every time i say yeah no which kate edits out <laughs> not always sometimes <laughs> not always but sometimes but i say that a lot when i'm recording yeah anything like this this is a podcasting tick from when i was doing a podcast on monsters of television <laughs> So this is, that's a thing. I definitely have mine as well, as I'm sure the listeners will let us know. Uh, <laughs> but but it should be a, an interesting evening. We're going to try to keep things uh, a little shorter on each show, but there's a lot of TV. There's a lot of there finales. A lot. Uh, so there's a lot of premieres. It's just, it's a, we're in a very busy, I feel like April this month uh, is, is this year, I should say, is like January was last year where all of a sudden all of the shows came out all at once and just, like, punched me in the face. I think that's accurate. Yeah, so the, it's my busiest month of the year by far with the rest of my life. And, of course, it also just happens to be the busiest month for TV so far. But uh, things will, you know, I think ease out in the next couple of weeks, and then I can catch up with Better Call Saul, which I still am behind on, so... I can't talk about or any of Kimmy Schmidt's. I've seen the first episode of Kimmy Schmidt's season. I watched two. all of it. Yay. Yeah. See, I'm so, be I'm no, so behind. I want to wait for you to watch all of it before we discuss it. We'll come back to it. Yeah. We'll do like a season spotlight at some yeah. point here. That sounds good. Yeah. But so there's a lot of, there's a lot of TV talk coming here on the podcast. Not everything. We can't be as comprehensive as I would like to be. And I am still going to make myself watch the game of silence, uh, pilot and the containment pilot, which we are not oh. planning to talk about. No, here. we shouldn't because it's bad and it made me really paranoid about dying of a massive virus in Atlanta because I live in Atlanta. Well, uh, yeah, so that, that will happen at some point here on, on the Televerse. But this I'm going to die from a virus on the Televerse? Well, I should hope not because I'm not <laughs> finding another co- This is not going to happen. You were kind enough to join me. I'm not going to be able to find another person as crazy as you we are, You would totally find someone else. Uh, well, You're that, wonderful. Well, thank you very much. You're and welcome. the love fest begins on the <laughs> Drinking Televerse. Obviously, this week we had a big loss in the entertainment world. Uh, Prince passed away uh, at 57, and it was a shock. It's just a really big loss. Um, we're not going to talk about it too much here at the top of the show because he is primarily a, mu a musical artist. Um, and I did really enjoy his his appearance on New Girl. And the fact that he sought that out, like he wanted to do New Girl, and he it was like a shipper. 
for Nick and Jess who wanted to be involved in getting them together, I think is amazing. It's always fun to hear when uh, really uh, it, artists that you respect and admire are also TV fans the way that we are. Um, but because, you know, I haven't seen the film Purple Rain. Um, I'm a bad nerd for that. I, I And we're, we don't want to get into a lengthy discussion of, of his music. So it's the, the passing of an icon. And I was very happy to see all the different tributes going up around the world, the Eiffel Tower and Purple. And as I was driving to Chicago the other day, uh, the, the, there were some purple lights, you know, shining out. And I don't, I assume, I don't know if those were all for Prince, but I like to think that they were probably, yeah, they were probably for Prince. Yeah. Uh, this week, uh, at the end of the show, we are joined by a friend of the show, uh, Emily L. Stevens from the AV club to talk about Alfred Hitchcock presents. If you notice a change in timbre and or speech patterns and speed, it's because we were not drinking when we recorded that one. Uh, but that'll be at the, the end of the show. Always lovely to talk with Emily. And, uh, I hear rumblings that Emily may be starting a podcast. I'm intrigued and I want to subscribe Fine. like now. So. Right, as long as it's on Google Play, I'll be great. Speaking of, we are now on Google Play and we are up on Stitcher. So Jason, Jason the TV holic who's been on me for literally months, if not years. I think it actually is years at this point to get on Stitcher because <laughs> that's how he listens to podcasts. I, we are now up on Stitcher. The M4A feed is what is up on both places. Um, I hopefully will get the MP3 up as well. But for now, if you want to listen on Google Play or if you want to listen on Stitcher... Just search the Televerse and we will come right up. Joining the, uh, like, I would say joining the 21st century, except that I feel like everybody else has been on Stitcher for so long. Right, and Google Play just started this week, so you're okay. I'm timely on that one, so yeah. I'll take it. And because of me, like, being, hey, Kate. Just poke, just poke. Hey, yeah. Jason's been poking me about that one, too, but you're right, absolutely. You, you, I was like, yeah, Noel's right, I need to get on that. So, uh, with little further ado... Uh, we will now take a break and come back with our week in comedy. After everything I've done for you that I didn't ask for, do you have any idea the work you're undoing? After everything I've done for you that you didn't ask for, let's just say Greg isn't the only one you're screwing. Want to know all the things I've done for you? of all his grades I bombed into Lourdes at Starbucks and suggested you be a bridesmaid I blackmailed Valencia's boss so now I control when she teaches that's right I make yoga class schedules there's no limit to where my rage is after everything I've done for you that you didn't ask for God well you're lying this week in comedy, I'm going to preview season five of Veep, which is back this Sunday. Super excited for that. Uh, and also talk a bit about Girls, which finished up its season five um, with love stories and I Love You Baby. Then Noel's going to talk about Time Traveling Bong, which I still haven't seen, but I look forward to your thoughts, Noel, before we both dive in with the Inside Amy Schumer premiere, The World's Most Interesting Woman in the World. And then Jane the Virgin, Chapter 40, probably also a little bit of Chapter 39, How Could We Not on the Drinking Televerse talk about the Bachelorette Party. Um, then we have the Brooklyn Nine-Nine finale, Greg and Larry, the Broad City finale, Jews on the Plane, and the Crazy Ex-Girlfriend finale. Paula needs to get over Josh! Um, so first up is Veep Season 5. I've seen the first four of the season, and uh, I'm excited to be covering it over at the AV Club again this season, week to week. And it's a really strong uh, start to the season. They, they come back 
they just don't, they go right into it. I, I think some people might be concerned because Armando Inucci, the creator, uh, stepped down last season, but uh, I think they do a really good job of maintaining the tone of the show, and the, and the actors have such a strong sense of the characters that it really doesn't skip a beat. They very wi- they're very wise on how they start the season, which I'm going to leave vague in case people don't know, haven't seen trailers, but uh, the last season ended on a cliffhanger. They could have jumped forward in time. They could have gone, like, the, picked up right where they left off. Um, th- their decision on that, I think, works really, really well, and the spine that they lay out for the season is just it's very smart, and it's going to give them a lot to to play with and to delve into. They uh, waste no time in sort of uh, establishing what their cast is going to be and where the, all the different characters are coming from this season, and uh, there's some fun shakeups and some... I think welcome returns of particular characters. I know there's a few cast members I was very happy to see back that I didn't necessarily expect to see back. But um, it, it feels a little different. The scoring is like almost non-existent in the premiere, which is very weird to me. And the pacing, it almost feels like they're listening to each other, which is not Veep at all. But um, it's a little there's a little bit more space. And I think that combination of much less score and uh, just slightly less dense uh, lines of, of dialogue kind of co- combines for that. But on the whole, I think it, it's really funny. And I was, like, I it had an all caps notes, Noel, I missed you, Veep, welcome back. So I think it's always will, a good sign. Yeah, people will be happy with this season of Veep, I would anticipate. So look for that on Sunday on HBO. We also had this week, as I said, the finale of Girls. Um, and, and what I found most interesting, because uh, I was about three or four episodes behind and had to you know decide that I was going to catch up for this episode and there was such a universal like praise for this finale and for the way that this season came together and there was so much compliment there were so many compliments of girls finally has hit a new level that I was intrigued so so I made sure that I caught up for the finale for this week on the podcast and I I think I just like the other seasons more than other people do. So, like, I really like the end of season four. I thought the finale was incredibly moving, and, and the way that they, the arc that they took the characters on, um, especially Hannah, in those last few episodes, was really powerful and effective. So, um, for me, this was in keeping with that and, and had some really great character beats and some really interesting um, dynamics. It was stuff we get with Jessa and Adam in the finale. I didn't buy at all like the the way that that fight escalates i just kind of kept waiting for them to start laughing because it just i didn't believe it as it broke out but the aftermath of that i thought was really effective and the conversations that they were having through it um was was dark but i think truthful to them um so that really worked though <laughs> turning the the raised coffee shop into an anti-hipster anti-hipster hotspot I thought was really fun and a great way to bring Shosh back into things uh Ray and Marnie uh, it remains interesting and uh I can't decide what I want to happen with Ray with that so we'll see Desi's still the worst uh very fittingly and where they leave Hannah at the end of the season it was it was really nice and it just it reminded me of the end of season two of Bojack Horseman which I really enjoyed and uh down to the theme of running and like the the last like freeze frame at the very at the very end of the season, um, I thought worked really well. So, uh, when you have me thinking of BoJack Horseman in a positive light, girls, then you know that uh, I'm on board. So I like I like these last few episodes. I thought they worked really well, and I look forward to how the show. It, it feels like it's moving into a last phase. So knowing that it's going into the last season, 
I'm looking forward to to what they will bring to the characters in this last chunk of the show. So, uh, yeah, I guess I'm on board with with the girls' love, and I guess I just I. I just like the other seasons more than other people, I guess. That's where I'm where I'm at with girls. But um, I've been talking too much. I need to be drinking more and less talking, more drinking. So, Noel, why don't you tell us about the time-traveling bong, uh, which I have not seen a moment of. Uh, what was your expectation going in, and did it live up to that? I didn't really have any expectations about time-traveling bong, aside from expecting it to be a stoner comedy. Obviously, it is a stoner comedy, because the word bong's in it. Um, but no, this stars Alana Glazer and Paul W. Downs, both of, um, Broad City, Alana, obviously. And, um, Paul W. Downs plays Trey, uh, Abby's, uh, trainer, would-be boyfriend. And it's, all three episodes are directed by, uh, Lucia Aniello. Um, apologies if I butchered that name. So basically, they both play cousins who discover that using the bong they have, they can travel in time. And without giving, like, too much away, there's a number of, like, standard time travel hijinks and that sort of thing that occur within it. So they accidentally travel back to dinosaur period and get immediately confronted with a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And they immediately light up again to get away from that, as anyone reasonably would. Uh, But the nice thing throughout the rest of this is that there's a steady stream of looking at sexual and feminism drink (laughs) mores um so when they end up in salem massachusetts um paul w downs character has a great time and alana glazer's character has a less than great time because they all assume she's a witch (laughs) chapter two was that they go back to 1963 and they kidnap michael jackson to prevent Michael Jackson from being abused and from basically becoming Michael Jackson so he doesn't he doesn't allegedly molest kids, he doesn't start Neverland Ranch, all this sort of stuff. They were just like, we two white people will prevent Michael Jackson from becoming Michael Jackson. Okay. There's a number of really good, funny, self-aware jokes at their expense that that was a really dumb idea that we had. <laughs> And also, Paul W. Down's character encourages, reminds him to buy the bat, the Beatles' um, song collection. So, yeah, there you go. But, so, it's fun. It's still very stoner comedy, but I think the, the second episode, which is appropriately titled The Middle, um, is probably the strongest of the three episodes that aired. Um, yeah, so, it's, it's okay. It's nothing essential. It's nice if you're a big fan of Paul W. Downs, especially if you're feeling like he doesn't get enough to do on Broad City. This really kind of shows you his range, which was really nice to see. And I only know him from Broad City. So it was nice to see him get to do something other than Trey. And that was my big takeaway for the time traveling bong. Okay, fair enough. That's intriguing. I liked (laughs) the idea of them in Salem is particularly intriguing to me. It was pretty funny, too. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll have to check that one out. But let's move on to our next show, which is Inside Amy Schumer, which had its season premiere, of as one would expect with uh, Inside Amy Schumer. Uh, there's plenty of feminism, drink, drink. Uh, and that's my favorite part of the episode. I enjoyed uh, the, the Yopus sketch. I enjoyed... Um, there was one other one. But the trouble I'm having with, with this episode is I didn't laugh once watching yeah. it 
and that's an issue. So if if there are episodes, if there are sketches that are, are you know, that, that I'm just enjoying watching because somebody's talking about this, which is great, and this is a topic that she could talk about more, then that'll get me through an episode much more if there's at least one that I'm actively laughing at that I feel like I can uh, share uh, out on social media or show to my family. And it won't just be the feminists, you know, the people who are particularly interested in that topic who enjoy it, but it'll translate. And this one didn't really have that. I, I think they wanted the Hamilton sketch to be their breakthrough of this uh, premiere, but it just, they released it early and it's just, it's just sort of not funny. It's going, is it going for awkward humor? What is it going for? Cause it's just very one note. I think it is going for awkward humor, but like you say, it's just very one note. Um, kind of the same joke over and over again in that it's bad Hamilton parody. It's not as particularly funny as it should be. I think that for me, the big joke was Questlove was willing to do this because even Questlove can't get tickets to Hamilton. <laughs> and I thought that was funny because obviously Questlove can get anything he wants in the universe because he's Questlove. But he can't get Hamilton tickets. Um, so that for me was funny, but I watched um, the Hamilton sketch before, as everyone did because they put it out early. And I just went, oh, this this is not great. Yeah. And I kind of felt awkward. Such a waste of Lin-Manuel Miranda, too. Yes, yeah. And I I kind of like that he was just kind of ticked off the entire time. I thought that was kind of fun. Because we all basically know him as this really gracious, really funny, eager guy in his interviews and everything. So him being pissed off was kind of kind of amusing. But not enough to like get the sketch to any particular level. Mm-hmm. So and it goes on forever. <laughs> it does go on forever. I, I'm not going to throw away my mop, Kate. I'm not. And I don't know yeah. why it seems she would have a mop. She would have a broom. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if, like, the last number or something had actually been really good. Right. That could have worked. But it's just, it's just, I don't know, it just didn't work. And I ho- hopefully this is, uh, you know, not going to be indicative of the rest of the season. Usually the season starts out really, really strong. Yeah. And then kind of starts to fade a little bit by the end of the season because it's just hard to have enough ideas to really fill that entire season uh, with so many sketches per episode but um hopefully this is just a fluke and they'll come back next week with just as many thought-provoking sketches and also some laugh out loud ones uh like the the um the sex chicken didn't work for me at all not funny um and also a lengthy sketch uh so i was just sort of underwhelmed so fingers crossed it's a fluke hopefully yeah i think one of the big things especially with like the congressional members the congress members in her pap smear test yeah was something that is a sadly always topical but b is also sadly like done to death at this point Mm -hmm. like jokes about oh jokes about male congress members deciding women's health there are only so many variations possible on that and i feel like we've gone through them at this point Mm mm-hmm so while the intention's good and it calls attention and it should always be a call of attention to that male Congress members are deciding what women should be able to do with their bodies, which is just so fucking ridiculous. Well, not being informed at all. <laughs> right. Not even putting that they're not informed is that we've just, it's been covered and like poked at so many mm-hmm. times that it's just like, there's not a new insight through the humor that's being achieved in that sketch, which is the biggest problem. Yeah. 
And again, that was the other sketch I was trying struggling to remember where I was enjoying it. I was going, right. yeah, it's great that this is something that they're talking about on the show. When is it gonna get funnier? Um, or, or 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 it needs to be counterbalanced with other sketches that are more outright, you know, laugh out loud. Right. One thing we should mention is, and I'll ask you as a way to mention it, is what did you think about her not interviewing randos on the street, but interviewing famous people at a bar? Um, I like the on the street interviews. I do too. Yeah, I think they're hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're gonna get a higher, uh, joke like hit to miss ratio when you have a bunch of comedians there. Yes. Which, you know, and it's so I like, you know, the people that she's talking to are all very funny and <laughs> I was enjoying uh you know, the color purple and other such <laughs> uh lines that that they were throwing out. But um yeah, I did miss the on the street segment. So hopefully again, hopefully that'll be something that comes back. Yeah. I hope so too. I enjoy the random people feeling feeling the compelled to be honest because Amy Schumer has a microphone in their face and it's really cold outside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I hadn't I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, that's a good point. It's a good point. Um well let's move on to our next show, and that's Jane the Virgin, chapter forty. So we I, I shouldn't say we. I didn't have much to say about last week's episode or this week's episode. I didn't either. It's okay. Yeah, but the the one thing I do think we need to talk about, however briefly, is Petra now has a twin. Yes. Is that a twin too far for you? Yes. I don't want to say yes, mm-hmm. because I love this show, and I love Yal Grablas. It was nice to see her get to do something different, and that was really great, I thought. So we go from really assertive, really conniving, to really meek and apologetic, except when confronted, and then she gets violent. Um, because, well, you know, born behind the Iron Curtain, and then shoved aside, and all this sort of stuff. So that was interesting, but like you, I just went, oh, another twin. And it's that kind of thing where I go, I have to remind myself that Jane is still a telenovela in a lot of ways, but they so rarely go to this very specific well, and they haven't really gone to this particular well in what feels like a really long time to me that... It was such a reminder that I just went, oh, right. And I wasn't a fan of it. And I wanted to be because I was, I, I liked both episodes, not a lot, but I still liked them. But it, I just felt like this was a twin too far. I'm guessing you felt the same way. Yeah, I will. I share your, um, your reservations about it. Mm-hmm. And I think also, just like you, I, I'm glad that they're giving y'all grab glass more to do. Um, but... And I'm glad that they're not doing that by just changing Petra again and sure. just making her wildly erratic as a character so that the actress gets more to do. However, they did not do very well with their last twins, the Zazos. So, um, I, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm torn. And, and I'm trying to think of what they can do with this storyline that isn't just a retread. Like, if they have her turn out to actually not be all meek and it's an act and everything, that's exactly what they did Yes, with with, with the Zazos. So that just... Yeah. I, I'm, I'm torn on it, because, again, we like this actress, we like the character of Petra. It's something for her to do that isn't involved with her mother directly. It's, you know, it's... It, these are all good things, but, um... 
they have not yet earned it as far as I'm concerned. So I'm sort of on the fence. I liked the rest of these episodes, though. I liked the bachelorette party and the bachelor party. I liked the way that um, things are developing on uh, the, you know, for Rahelio at work. I like that they seem to be bringing in Judy Reyes as a more regular. Right. Because she's awesome. She's so awesome. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's, a, I also really like that they're committing so fully to Jane and Michael, which also has me nervous that he's gonna he's die. Gonna die, yes. In, at the wedding. Yeah. Because yeah. it's still called Jane the Virgin, so. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, ellipses, any final thoughts on Jane? No, um, just that I'm, I'm prepared for a big telenovela twist at the season finale like we got in season one. Mm-hmm. So I'm prepared this time for it, even though, unlike a lot of people, I was very much okay with Mateo's kidnapping because I just went, right, this is a telenovela, after me just complaining about the fact of, right, this is a telenovela. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm prepared for a telenovela twist in the finale, and that telenovela twist is probably Michael dying, and I'm very sad about that. Yeah. 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 Okay, we're not thinking about that. We're thinking about happy things like Brooklyn Nine-Nine uh, mostly having a happy finale until the very end. Uh, what did you think of, of Greg and Larry and how it brought this, like, this pimento arc to uh, a bit of, at least a, a pause point? Pause point, right. Um, For me, it was just an okay-ish episode. I was expecting and honestly hoping for a lot more um, exchanges between um, Dennis Haysbert and Andre Brower. And so I really wanted a lot more of that. But it was saved for me by going to Rosa's apartment. <laughs> I was going to say, I loved the shading that they gave Rosa during for feminism. Yes. Yes. And, uh, and I, I think I'm glad that we didn't actually get to see Emily interact and so we just got to imagine what that would be like. Yes. The sunny, won't stop talking, always smiling Emily. Um, but yeah, the needed a pop of color. I mean, that's <laughs> so good. Stephanie Beatrice, uh, totally killing it. But I mean, just whole like little throwaway lines. Like she's going to leave this apartment now because everyone's been there. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, this is fantastic and ridiculous. And like you said, like, the fact that the super thinks she's too chatty and smiles too much yeah, is so funny that, I mean, one of my big problems with the whole Pimento arc was I thought Pimento was just too much for the show after the, his first appearance in that he just kept getting more and more outlandish and more and more vaguely psychopathic that I felt like he was too much not part of this show's world basically mm-hmm. and yet the entire idea that rose is going to leave and basically start a whole new life doesn't bother me at all even though that's completely insane <laughs> but i'm okay with it because i love rosa and i love that performance and so i was just really really into this entire concept that rosa outside of the police force has this way of Letting off steam by being a totally other person is how I framed a lot of it. The idea that she knows that it needs a pop of color is just her letting another part of herself out. And I think that's really great that the show acknowledges that Rosa has this other part of her that has to be acknowledged, that she acknowledges. And I think that's really, really, really wonderful. And I also enjoyed them trying to interrogate Dennis Haysbert in a variety of ways that just 
failed miserably. My entire idea rested on you having kids. <laughs> okay, who had the best interrogation techniques? I think I got to give it to Gina. With, with, it's not all about you. <laughs> no, no, no. It was totally Gina. <laughs> the jazz was pretty good, too, though. Yes. Yeah. Good times. It was a very solid finale, and I'm eager for them to to see what they do with them in witness protection for an mm-hmm. episode. Like, that's all I need from that, is an episode of them in witness protection. And then they get to go back to the 9-9. Agreed. We're on the same page with that one. Um, but I do need to drink more of this cider, so that means we should talk about Broad City, because we're not talking about Jews on a plane without me drinking for feminism. So what did you think uh, of this episode? And uh, for me... The highlights, uh, which were our, our uh, flight attendants with their steps and their need for a high school reunion headline. Not only the high school reunion headline, but the fact that one of them just loved them, but did not like them. Yeah. <laughs> which I felt was so really nicely nuanced and mm-hmm. a really funny like twist at the end of that episode. Because the entire episode is just them like talking like nonstop with one another and giving one another advice and like getting into their lives. And it's just like, I don't actually like you very much. And it's just like, I'm okay with that as long as we get to do this. And I'm just like, that's fantastic because it's such a nice compliment to the deep and undying love that Abby and Alana have for one another, that getting interrogated by the Israeli military isn't enough to drive a wedge between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And Mossad don't mess around. Because <laughs> I've seen enough NCIS to know that. Yep, that's true. That's um, true. So no, this episode was really, really funny. I enjoyed the endless struggle for a tampon. Just vicariously. Yeah. Not being yeah. able to fully understand it in any way, shape, or form, obviously. Yeah. But just from having many, many female friends i understand that kind of plight of i'm not i don't have any in my purse we need (laughs) to go get some (laughs) (laughs) and i just and i had never thought about the idea of what do you do on a plane if you don't have any yep hashtag male privilege (laughs) right and i'm just like this is fantastic it's horrible but it's fantastic because they mind it for such great comedy and then kate I love any any sort of Hebrew or Jewish pun, even though I am not not Jewish or anything. The prolonged explanation of the Moyle High Club, <laughs> yeah, killed me. Killed me. I, I I couldn't stop laughing at this long explanation and the idea that Abby's a, not Jewish enough to know what a Moyle is. <laughs> Haven't we all seen that episode of uh, of Seinfeld? I mean, come on. Yes. So, no. So, um, tell me what you thought about it. And just, is the struggle real for the tampon in an airplane? Oh, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and that doesn't have to be an airplane, but, like, Any on a bus. Trip. Or, like, right. you like you just sit down in lecture and your teacher has, like, made it very clear you're not. Or, like, it's a test and you can't leave. Or, right. You know, if you're a professional musician and you're about to start a two-hour concert you're sure. in the middle of the stage what are you supposed to do um so th- like yeah I, 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 I was just so relatable and the way that they were you know 
addressing and discussing the the situation. The fact that it was uh, presaged with the period pants, right, was um, really good. Was nice. Uh, I was I was sort of meh on the first half of this from from the previous week. Mm-hmm. Um, I was underwhelmed, but um, I thought this really brought the characters back together in a nice way and. Um, not that they weren't they, they weren't a part of the previous week, but it gave them more opportunity to actually like talk and connect as opposed to just get into wacky adventures. And that's the part of the show I'm most interested in. Uh, the Moyle High Club I thought was really fun. Uh, I didn't really care for uh, Seth Green um, and or that character I should say. The performance was fine, but I didn't particularly care much for that character because it just felt very again one note that we're going to drag out through the entire two episodes and. Um, I I got more out of the discussion of how Jewish or not uh, Abby is, uh, so so that that was that was nice. That was more what I was was keying into. But um, yeah, on a whole, I thought it was a solid, if not um, sterling finale right. for for Broad City. I think their other two finales have have been better, sure. but, um, but 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 yeah, I thought it was a lot of fun, and I certainly have enjoyed the season with with these characters. And in a lot of ways, like, I felt like this finale was, like, following action in a lot of ways. Because I felt like so much of, like, the dinner episode mm-hmm. was very much, like, the finale of the season. And this was just them, like, reconnecting, basically. Yeah, I was actually a little disappointed when I realized that we weren't going to get any Trey Abby stuff in the last two episodes. Right. Because uh, I was really looking forward to that. But hopefully next season. Fingers crossed. Um, next up, we have uh, the Crazy Ex-Girlfriend finale. Paula needs to get over Josh! We led into the segment uh, with one of the songs, and uh, I-, I thought that the music was, was solid here. Uh, the-, the-, the number that they give Paula works really well. Uh, nice to see that actress really get to shine and just go all out. Because um, I feel like the other songs they've given her previously haven't really let her belt in the same way. I know that her like lounge number, she got to open up a little bit, but she clearly had more power. And so she just mama roses it (laughs) this week. And it was, it was really great. Um, How did you feel about uh, this finale? I mean, were you excited about Leah Salonga? Do you know who that is? No, I didn't know who that was. Leah Salonga was the, she originated the role of, of Kim in Miss Saigon. Uh, she was the first uh, Filipino to play Eponine um, and Fantine in Les Mis on Broadway. She voiced Jasmine and Mulan in, in Aladdin and Mulan. So, yeah, she's kind of a big deal. <laughs> but only for us well, now I feel, musical theater nerds. Now I feel bad for not knowing okay. her. Thanks, well, Kate. now you do, though, so so this is a good thing. Yes, now I do. <laughs> um, so, so that's, of course, the aunt who sings the song um, at the wedding. But, uh, so, so I'm guessing then you connected with Paula's song a lot more. Yes, no, Paula's song, like, knocked me, like, on my ass, basically. I really, really liked Paula's song a whole lot. Um, even just from the fact that it was just, it was so much build-up to this song, because we the episodes leading up to this had been driving home this point of I'm over Josh, I'm over Josh, you need to get over Josh we need to get over Josh as like friends and it was just this big big like emotional cathartic moment for everyone and I was really really excited and very very happy that Paula got that number considering like Paula was turned into a cartoon raccoon (laughs) (laughs) so I was really glad that she managed to just lay all of that out there. Mm-hmm. 
Um, how'd you feel about the ending uh, of of the season of of having her and Josh actually hook up, having Josh finally break things off with Valencia, um, and then having Josh recoil in terror when he realizes what he should have clearly already known? Right. Um. All right. So let me preface this all by saying that Rebecca's emphasis on having a big romantic moment for me happened when Paula came to the wedding and yes. they ran to each other in the wedding. That was the big romantic moment in this episode for me. And that was what mattered to me was the fact that their friendship, despite that big number that appeared to like break them, mm-hmm. was remedied by them talking over one another for like a minute and a half, it felt like. And it was lovely and it was beautiful and it was great. And it almost made up for the fact that I didn't like anything else that happened in this episode. Oh, ouch. Yeah, because... And I'm chalking a lot of it, a lot of it up to the fact that I really don't think that they expected <laughs> to have a back episode order. Yeah. <laughs> and so this stuff with Greg, the stuff with Josh, the stuff with Rebecca, it all felt really, really rushed for me, anyway. And so Greg's decision to be an asshole, just. I get it. Greg is scared and, like, stupid, and that's who Greg is. But I felt like we had, A, done this already, mm-hmm. and B, that he had decided not to do this. Yeah. And then he went and did it. Yeah. And I just went, oh, that's fantastic. So to your question about Josh recoiling in horror, realizing all of this, I also recoiled in horror because I went, no. <laughs> We have established prior to this that she left because she was unhappy in New York and Josh was this reason and excuse for her to leave. And that it was just an idea of West Covina that was better than New York in some way. Mm -hmm. So this idea that, yes, she was in love with Josh came about afterwards. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that, oh, right, I left because of you, I just went... No, you, 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 but, but you, you didn't. He was an instigating incident, but yes, if her life was good, if she was happy, she wouldn't have right. left she wouldn't, New York. She wouldn't have left. Yeah, so, she wouldn't have been having panic attack, panic attacks. She, she wouldn't have been completely miserable, and she wouldn't have left New York. So yeah, they take a complicated reason and 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 character-based decision, and they make it incredibly simplistic. Now you could argue that the show isn't saying this. Uh, Rebecca is saying this, and right, you know, she, and that's that's a fair point to make. But uh, the way that yeah. they present it, it doesn't necessarily feel like that. Like the show doesn't feel like it's disagreeing with her, and maybe it's just because it's so quick. But yes. um, yeah, yeah. Fingers crossed that gets undone pretty quickly. Based on how Josh reacted um, with their reprise in the bus, the party bus forever ago what feels like forever ago i didn't really buy him recoiling in horror um it feels like he should be on board for starting a fairy tale romance with rebecca right. i think that's fair um and i do buy greg being an idiot but um not in the way that they necessarily showed it 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 just felt very much like this is what needs to happen for the ending we want to do yes so i think that's yeah. That's a fair assessment. It's a little underwhelming. But I did really like everything we got with, with Paula and Rebecca. That was that was really great. Uh, so great. The the song with um, 
One happy moment. The least longest song. Um, I, underwhelming. I thought, like, yeah. I don't know. I, I the I liked that they didn't let Rebecca or they didn't let Rachel Bloom really sing it. <laughs> so I, I thought that worked right. Worked really well, but um, it it, it was fine. But I mean, you got Lisa Longa. I mean, she can do more. You let than that. her. You let her do her thing. Obviously. Yeah. Let, let her. You know, like I like. I got what they were going for with it. They're going for this whole Disney princess thing, but the best Disney songs, the the I am Disney songs that we all remember and all love if we're Disney fans, um, I think are like a notch better. This feels like the like B or C level Disney princess musical kind of level of song and not like the, I don't know, part of your world or the various, the ones from Beauty and the Beast and, and some of these other like really iconic Sure. If this imprinted on Rebecca, I was like, this is the one? This is not Let It Go. This is not, like, next tier level Disney song, so. <laughs> oh, well. So are you still excited for next season? Oh, no, absolutely. Um, no, we were, I was actually talking about it with Corey a little bit. Um, in part because TV by the Numbers did a breakdown of all the plus three, plus seven numbers for Crazy X, for all the networks mm-hmm. and for the CW. And Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is, like, dead last, even after the plus seven numbers. Mm -hmm. And it's just, like, it just added, like, kindling to my idea that the CW's pilot season was just really terrible. Yeah. Because as much as I love Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and as much as I'm sure a lot of this renewal was based on the fact that Pedowitz was glad it won a Golden Globe, and that they're very much into the idea of cultivating talent, I think that there's no other reason to have renewed crazy ex-girlfriend yeah well they've said that they don't make num- they don't make money on their show they make money on their shows they don't make money on the airings so it's not about yeah. ads it's about other methods of, of getting money off of sure. their properties but um and i've bought the crazy ex-girlfriend album so there you go there you go there you go yeah. I, I, on the on the whole it's been a strong season it's been uh yes like when you think of the various musical series there have been this is definitely the 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 best if you're gonna look at numbers of songs like consistency so like i haven't seen blackpool yet but as i understand it's like six episodes so when you're looking at level of difficulty and how consistent on uh, as as a whole the season is and the issues it's dealing with and the topic it's it's interested in um be they mental health be they all these different you know issues that have come up i I think it's really hard not to look at this season of crazy ex-girlfriend as quite an accomplishment no, I to- I would totally agree. Like, I mean, my from a business standpoint is yeah. what I was talking oh, yeah, about. Of from a creative standpoint, it's just like, yes, obviously, why wouldn't you want more of this? Yeah. Because it's a terrific show, period. Mm-hmm. Full stop. And, yeah, no, that's really all that needs to be said. It's just terrific show, period, full stop. Well, then what wins your week in comedy? Uh, I'll give it to the Broad City finale, um, just because it made me laugh quite a bit. And I thought it was just a really solid way to, as you alluded to in your discussion, an extrapolation of a very common problem into an extreme comedic set piece. And I thought that was just really, really funny. Uh, What about you? What won your week? I'm going to give it to, I'm torn, uh, but I think I will give it to the Crazy Ex-Girlfriend finale because despite my nitpicks for it, I have really enjoyed the season and, um... Now that they've got gotten the Rebecca and Josh hookup out of the way, 
hopefully that will lead to new and delightful things in in the new season and the upcoming season. So despite my nitpicks, still really love Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is why we are listening to so much music from it. But now, uh, and have been this year, but now we're going to take a break and come back with our week in drama. Oh, Lord, praise in That was Move Daniel featured this week in uh, in Underground, sung by Amira Van um, and uh, the Underground cast. Uh, so much to say about Underground, but we're not starting with that. We're starting with The Night Manager, which had its pilot, episode one. This all aired over in the UK already, but it started up this week on AMC. Then we'll talk briefly about The Path, The Whole, before we round things out with Underground Cradle. It's a, it's a truncated weekend drama this week because there were other shows we could have talked about that we both watched, but... When you put them next to some of these episodes, specifically Underground, it was just, why are we spending time on that when we could be talking more about Underground? But first up is, as I said, The Night Manager. Um, what did you think of this episode? And did it, was it more interesting for you because Tom Hiddleston and Hugh Laurie on my TV, yay! Or or was it the spy threat? Like, what was interesting to you about this pilot and how did it deliver? Okay, so I was really excited about Night Manager for all of those reasons, plus John Le Carre, mm-hmm. who I'm a big fan of. Like, I've read a number of his novels. I haven't read Night Manager um, before, so that was actually, I was actually eager to see this adaptation of it. And to prove how much I hadn't read Night Manager, I thought it was a significantly older novel than it was. <laughs> Because it was published in 1993, and I was just like, oh, it's probably from the 60s or 70s. I'm really eager to see how they update this from a Cold War setting. And I just went, oh, no, it's 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 from a post-Cold War setting. Okay. <laughs> but no, so it was very much, it was, yay, Tom Hiddleston. It was, yay, Hugh Laurie and his bald spot. <laughs> oh, I noticed that last <laughs> season on Veep. Right, and yeah. I had to be told that Veep hadn't hidden his um, bald spot in the way that House had for years. Mm-hmm. And so I just went, holy shit, we're going <laughs> to see the bald spot. That's incredible. But no, so it was just a combination of actors. Um, as a premiere, I was a little like, I was a little surprised at how premisey and how piloty it was, though. Which kind of... Sh- it just, it like I said, it, it just really, really surprised me. So, little things like doing a flashback to something that happened four years ago in story, but ten minutes ago for the audience is never my favorite thing in the world, <laughs> and makes me a little nervous. <laughs> um, but on the whole, I really liked Night Manager, uh, the premiere. Um, I enjoy Tom Hedleston and well-tailored clothing. <laughs> and I also am envious of Tom Hiddleston in button-down shirts that are buttoned down just enough to make me feel like I need to work out more so I can wear my button-downs like that. Uh-huh. But I also feel like as soon as Hugh Laurie like, gets on the screen with Hiddleston, it just immediately really came to life for me. Like, 
there's an immediate amount of chemistry between the two of them, even though Hedleston's very much trying, as a character, trying not to respond to anything Hugh Laurie's arms dealer incognito character is saying and doing and all of this sort of stuff. But there's an immediate amount of chemistry between the two of them that I just really responded to them. And also it doesn't hurt that Hugh Laurie just comes in and immediately owns everything around him. So I, I, I liked this pilot. It wasn't as engaging as I was expecting it to be. But aesthetically, and especially the stuff uh, once they got to uh, Switzerland, I thought it looked really gorgeous. And I liked the confined that everything once they got to Switzerland became tighter in its composition and its shot focus. I thought it was fantastic, given the small space of both Heddleston's character's actual room and also the, lo- the hotel itself. But I'm really, really eager for more, and... I'm eager to see how they justify this hotel manager ingratiating himself to this international arms dealer of significant renown. But at the same time, I'm willing to roll with basically whatever they go with because I like the idea so much. Um, so what did you, how did you feel about this? Did you have huge expectations? Were you very much like Tom and Hugh and Vapors? <laughs> and just tell, tell me what you thought about it. Uh, I, I was uh, I was disappointed a little bit. I think um, I, I heard I, I saw it just earlier today. I caught up with it on uh, my DVR, and um, I had heard other people being much more excited. Now I've I'm not the Hiddleston um, fangirl that I know some people are. Of course, I enjoy Tom Hiddleston. He's incredibly talented. He's a very pretty person, as pretty much everybody on TV is. They're all gorgeous, um, but I won't necessarily seek something out because like sure. that's not necessarily enough of a reason for me to just be like sitting with my hand uh, you know my chin on my hand just gazing longly towards my television stop um, making fun of how i watch this episode kate <laughs> or how we all watch jeffrey dean morgan um but right. um but i i, I thought I, I think i just went into it hoping or expecting it to have a little bit more action or to just not be as straightforward as it appears to be, at least so far. I was, I don't know, I guess I just had this idea that the Hiddleston character had more of a backstory that was of more interest and wasn't just like, no, he's just, he's a guy who works at a hotel and he has, he was a soldier, he's got, you know, principles and ideas, but I, I kind of, the way it was being billed felt very, no, he's got like a, he's a secret spy and he's gonna be like, badass right away in the first episode this is very much not that that's on me that's not on the show uh but it didn't grab my attention the way that i like spy shows to do um the way that for example london spy did in its very first episode for me this year um and how you know other great shows like the americans which we're not talking about this week because i don't have more to add other than martha (sighs) um but yeah, I, I mean, I I think I enjoy more the entire ensemble cast. So Olivia Coleman is great. Tom Hollander, I really enjoy, um, and, and and so seeing how everything else gets fleshed out might be more my speed. But um, for right now, it's it feels like a lot of. I, I feel like I need more substance. It feels like too much flash and not enough meat. And the fact that it didn't like I was. I was like doing something and it was on and it didn't make me have to stop 
like folding laundry or whatever. I didn't feel like I didn't get sucked into what I was watching. Um, I think is a indicator of, of my level of interest, which is again, if we weren't in the middle of hashtag peak TV, that would be one thing, but we are, there's a lot of shows. So I don't know that I'll necessarily prioritize this the way that I was hoping I would want to, if that makes sense. Sure. No, that makes sense. And, um, I'll be prioritizing it because mm-hmm. I, I'm very excited to see where this goes, obviously based on my reaction to everything. Um, yeah. apart from the idea that this was just really, really primacy and that I wasn't in love with the whole, Oh, we're going to kill the dead. We're going to kill the lady. So yeah. that he has a motivation to do this. Yeah. Oh, well, I've been here. That didn't help. Thing. Anti-drink yeah, for no. anti-feminism. <laughs> right. And a lot, um, part of that was me just going, well, adapted from a 1993, but at the same time, you could have changed it in some way, shape, mm-hmm. or form that it wasn't this. Yeah. So, but I'm excited enough just to see Hugh Laurie do this, really, and play just an evil version of the Chicago-based film critic Richard Roper? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one who was thinking that. <laughs> oh, God, no. I, I can't imagine that anyone else right now isn't going, when did that film critic become an arms dealer? <laughs> So, no, I'm I'm pretty excited, and even though this is on a really crowded night for me, um, is that I'll probably, like, be carving out time for this. Yeah. Well, I hear the second episode is a distinct step up from the first episode. Sure. So, I definitely will be watching the next episode, at least. Um, and probably, let's, let's be honest, it's me. If you're going to watch it, I'm probably going to watch it. Um, and you're definitely going to watch it, so that takes care of that. But, uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what comes next. And I know this is a very talented cast, so hopefully they will get more opportunities to shine and i will see what you see in the show um speaking of i i guess let's move on to our next show which is the path and the whole because i know that's another show where we really enjoy the cast um i was uh fairly gushing about the the episode last week i was more tempered mm-hmm. on the whole okay. my review is over at the av club but what was interesting to me is for me it felt like this episode was setting up um a a dichotomy between the three lead characters and how they respond to and interact with faith and belief. And so for me, it feels like rather than just examining belief or faith, the show is interested in examining the, the intersection of control and empathy with faith embodied in Cal and Eddie and Sarah and how these various things come together. Um, maybe that's just because you know how I love to overanalyze drink. Drink! But <laughs> but for me, uh, the this episode kind of, uh, that, that's what this episode brought out in me. And maybe just because there wasn't the fireworks of the previous episode to, to distract me. Um, but that's sort of where I was at with this with this episode. What did you think of the whole? Right. Well, my before I go into that, I'd like for you, because I didn't read your review this week, um, I apologize. Um, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> but can you elaborate a little bit on this idea of control and faith as it relates to the other three characters for those of our listeners and for me who maybe just didn't read your review? Oh, no, yet? of course. No, um, what's interesting to me about Cal, and this is an issue I was having with, a problem I was having with the show earlier on that they resolved for me in the previous episode, The Future, is I didn't, I couldn't tell, and I, I didn't think the show was willing to commit 
to whether he actually had any faith and believed in any of this stuff or was just using it as a way to exert authority. And in the past two episodes, they've convinced me that he does actually have some level of belief or faith in this because this Dr. Meyer was the surrogate father figure to him and, and gave his life guidance and stability that he was utterly lacking. So he is defined by this need to control himself and control others around him. And that is obviously forefront in in his mind and in his psyche and then second to that is this notion of faith and belief and and knowing what is right or what is best so when you look at a belief or a faith or a religion and they're saying this is how you should lead your life is that driven by an honest belief in that teaching or is it driven by a need to control is it driven by wanting to help people where do those priorities lie for each character and with eddie we see him respond not by saying oh well meyer says this or or i know what's best for you but by pulling back and listening and trying to engage both with hawk in this episode and also with abe saying well with abe well you know I, maybe it'll help you. I think it's obviously a gay Meyerism. I believe it, but that's not going to help your daughter. That's not going to change anything about your daughter. So before you try to hope that the answer will be, you know, that, that we can tell you what is going to solve your life, you need to accept what you can't control, accept the parts of life that are outside of your reach. Um, and that, and so he responds to Hawk by trying to understand what, are you go feeling what are why are you drawn to this person what's her name tell me and, and then with uh with sarah we get you know she feels like she has answers like she knows the right thing but it's driven by her belief and her faith so she is not interested in finding about out about hawk's girlfriend she's not interested in these other things she's interested in in guiding people to the light and helping and and, and she thinks that she can help them she thinks that she if she if they listen to her she can tell them what to do and that will make their life better. But she, so for her, I would say it's faith and then control and then empathy. And so like, and seeing how these different elements intersect in what as a culture, as an overwhelmingly Catholic or Christian, I should say country, how we perceive belief and whether it's a positive thing or a negative thing. And so if you have, if you're driven entirely by empathy, but you don't have, you don't aren't actually buying into the faith of it. Does that really count as being tied to that religion and if you, your solution is always to just listen and you don't actually tell somebody what they should do when they're coming to you for guidance, like what happens with Eddie, is that a good thing? Or at a certain point, does that lead you to uh, not have any forward progress, to not actually change anything? If somebody's looking for direction and you don't give it to them, is that a good thing or a bad thing? So for me, this is what this episode sparked in me. And what do you think about this? Well, I think that that's a very astute read of the episode. Um, one that I, I hadn't, one of the things that I run into a lot, um, is that if I'm not reviewing a show, sometimes I don't immediately engage critically with it. Oh yeah, no, me too. <laughs> right. And I mean, this is just something that happens. Like, I mean, my critical headspace is basically taken up by having to justify reviewing three superhero shows and the good wife, which we're not talking about this week because no. And, um... So me watching the path is me wanting to engage with it in the way that you're engaging with it, but not necessarily 
always having the critical faculties to do so. It's not a job for you to make sure that you have things to say. So you're not setting aside the time to sit and ponder about it and watch it again and all of that. Yeah, of course. Well, even if I would have the opportunity, because I do so many like immediately post-air reviews now, uh, (laughs) that I just have to give a gut response. But I think that my gut response to this episode was very much a gut response that was grounded in a lot of what you talked about. Um, Especially in regards to Cal. Because while I was watching the episode, I was talking with a number of my TV.com colleagues on our Slack. And I typed to them while I was watching the episode, holy shit, Hugh Dancy is really good at barely contained rage. Mm -hmm. And... I mean, it's just not like the fact that Hugh Dancy's really good at expressing that was displayed a couple episodes ago and the explosion that he does in the assistant living center. But just his, his, you can see him ready to tear that venture capitalist apart limb from limb in his office. And he, Dancy does such a nice job of making Cal's rage visible but just 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 visible and i think that gets very much to this idea of control that you were talking about in a number of different levels and it was just so compelling to watch that happen for me that it just kind of overpowered a lot of the rest of the episode for me but at the same time i mean this idea of control and this idea of listening that you talked about in between cal and Eddie, for me, comes through a lot as well in their 7R discussion mm-hmm. of what did you see in the hole? And again, we're getting into that tug of war of what do you know? And this idea of the power play between them on a number of different levels, just not regarding Sarah, but also be- regarding like, how can you destroy Myrosm and me with it? type of stuff but just this eddie wants to hear like you alluded to and he's interested in learning as much about cal as possible for potentially other reasons but that's also who as you say eddie is he wants to listen he wants to know and understand and figure out how best the tenets of myerism can be applied to someone else and i think that's a really your breakdown of how these three deploy myerism i think is really really interesting and i think it also solves the issue in a certain way that we still don't know a lot about myerism but that how each of them are using it almost makes up for that fact for Mm -hmm. me anyway because it's influencing their response to other people and i think that's just really really fascinating and i I'll even go so far as to say I think it's more fascinating than totally understanding Myerism. Mm-hmm. So, in all of that, plus with your reading of the episode, which again, I think is really, really spot on, is that I think that this episode, that you really helped put this episode into a context for me that I didn't have before, which is really important for A, a show like this, but also B, for any type of criticism. And crystallize a lot of my own thoughts about the episode which i really really appreciate so thank you and this was just a this was again i think a really good sign for this series going forward Mm -hmm. that it has such a firm grasp on these three characters as like a triad basically 
in, in, in this episode, it's not just that they're driven by these three elements. It's that they're all provoked by fear. Yes. It's, it's their different responses to fear. And I, I think that's really interesting. And, and having, adding this element of Sarah's uh, sister, Tessa, I think is fantastic. And I look yes. forward to Chekhov's sister showing up by the end of the season. <laughs> uh, like she better. Um, so that, that really helped put Sarah and Eddie on even footing in regards to Hawk. Because otherwise it would be like just Eddie's right. Sarah's wrong. Sarah's never been a teenage right. boy. So maybe she should back off a little bit. Um, but uh, that, that really helped, I think, put them on equal footing. I liked the vision we got, the memory we got from Sarah. I thought that was neat. I liked um, the progress we made with um they, they moved the ridges forward i thought that worked i liked uh allison and abe kind of meeting up that works a lot better i think allison kemp works a lot better with abe than she does with eddie um yes. so that was good i also was very happy to see mary seem to move on from cal so fingers Hopefully. crossed that sticks at least a little she was gonna leave yeah that's good yeah well it's good in the fact that she's staying with a cult <laughs> well, yeah, the, the, no, no, her, but her, her wanting to leave tells me that she's over yeah. Cal and his, in his bullshit. So fingers crossed that doesn't get undone too soon. The only other thing I'll say is that, wow, wasn't it refreshing for Michelle Monaghan to be involved in another sex scene and not have to take her top off? That was nice. <laughs> that was nice, wasn't it? Cause I felt like that's all she had to do in true detective season one. <laughs> yeah no the I, I'm, I'm really enjoying the way that they're dressing her um the the like the flared jeans and the the kind of high shirt from the other week it's very uh like reminiscent of like hippie culture and everything too right while still feeling modern enough um yes so i think because you know, i mean she's very much coming from that flower child mentality mm-hmm. yeah so no i think that's that's again a really good like note from that episode well let's move on to the bell of the ball i think we could both agree this week which yes. is underground cradle uh which is amazing guys if you're listening to this podcast and you're not watching underground if you don't get wgn america fair enough but if you do get the to underground because they just reached into our at least i'm speaking for you no we haven't talked about it yet but i'm assuming they reached into our chest cavity and pulled out our beating hearts with this episode which follows each of the children in the show by giving them basically each an act and following what they're experiencing and watching each of them move along the spectrum from childhood to awareness and loss of innocence in just a heartbreaking way I'm never going to make the mistake of watching Underground again at 7 a.m. Um, I have like... <laughs> Good morning! <laughs> yeah, no, it, I, I I was very much aware of like, all right, this is on Wednesdays. I, I made a choice to watch like Broad City and Time Traveling Bong <laughs> instead of Underground, which was a mistake. Um, and then I was just like, well, I, I need to make sure I watch Underground before we record and before I have to review Legends of Tomorrow. So... I'm going to watch it before I go to work. So from like 6.45 to about 7.20 is when I had I had time to watch this episode. I was just like, all right, it's going to be another like fun, which is a terrible thing to say about a slave escape but thriller. But that's the way they've set themselves up, though. Right, I think you're no, good. but yeah, no, they've set this, themselves up as this very pulpy but very thoughtful pulp narrative. And I was just like, that's what I was expecting when I turned on the episode this week. And I was just like, this is okay. And then I tweeted, 
No, Underground, it's not okay that you're doing this to me at 7 a.m. And Roan Kaiser, who used to write for the AV Club and writes for a couple of other places now, tweeted back very sarcastically, No, Slave Escape Show, stop toying with my emotions. And that's the proper response to this show. <laughs> um, but this episode in particular, because as you said, Kate, this episode really did just like tear my heart out. It Just the opening of, and the tie-in of using the candy in each vignette, basically, mm-hmm. to connect everything and to connect this idea of childhood and then to just, just drive it the home is the only way I can express it when James tells T.R. that he doesn't want his candy anymore like I just lost it Kate Mm -hmm. (laughs) like it was just like alright I understand like this little kid who's like what nine Mm -hmm, something like that understands (laughs) On a fundamental level that a decade is too long to wait, that even if he could wait a decade, it wouldn't matter, and that taking that piece of candy is in some ways being complicit, just like... Yeah. I'm doing my mind explode gesture. (laughs) (laughs) So, right, and... So just those vignettes, I couldn't get over. Like, the Tyr and the James vignettes are just gorgeous and lovely and beautiful. Um, The vignettes involving... With Henry is kind of... uh, Whatever. It it was a reminder of where everyone was, basically, and it felt kind of plot Mm servicey. I wasn't as fully engaged with that one, but, like, the Boo one, I felt, was less about her, which was a little frustrating for me. And we can maybe talk about that because you're making a face at me. Um, So we can talk about that. I think that there's elements that are about her, but I think there are also elements that are very much about um, Jessica Degau's character and the links that she's willing to go to for her and her husband's movement and how her husband is going to respond when she finds out what she's done. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like that more so than Boo's maturity and understanding of what happened to her father, which is represented really well in those very brief flashbacks, like beautifully well. And so, yes, no, this episode is just like heart-soppingly beautiful and gorgeous and like one of the best hours of television this season. And I've been talking a while. So correct (laughs) me on the boo stuff and also tell me other things that you pick out of this episode. Well, the the Boo storyline, I think, um, it is very much about Elizabeth. I would agree with that. Um, but what it also, like, I, I think, and you alluded to this, the way that they visualize her experiences, the artistic, expressionistic way that they, like, using the fireworks. I'm going to get choked oh, up God. For, the, for the guns. What? Oh, man. Because at first you don't realize exactly, or at least I didn't realize exactly what's happening. It was like, why? Oh, that's why there's fireworks. Um, and it just, it breaks your heart. What, what got me, um, was it, I, I didn't last until the candy at the end. I was just, just angry tears on my face as James picked cotton. Cause that was the reality of right? our country right. for a long time. And it just made me angry. And I, I think that's something that we could all stand to be angry about 
every now and again. Um, but to get back to the episode in particular, um, the, the, the progression of that character works really well, but you know, to add another element of this episode that was really powerful to me, um, of course, I'm going to go to the music. So this whole episode is scored with lullabies. So we have the spiritual run Daniel. Um, we have uh, summertime, uh, by Gershwin from Porgy and Bess. Um, and that's used to counterpoint TR and James when it first comes up with James, it's just like, sarcastic and and angry at least that's how it made me feel like it's like it's great see because there's a lot of fish and it's easier to pick the cotton that you're spending your entire day picking when you're in the field so that's something to be happy about and honestly that's something that to be happy about and the fact that that is true in that song is just heartbreaking and then when it comes back later as tr is on his horse just like having a day you know and it really is Life really is easy for him comparatively. The way that they contrasted those two those two children with that same song was very powerful. And then with Boo um, using All the Pretty Horses, which All the Pretty Little Horses, I should say, which um, I'm very familiar with because um, Copeland put it into his uh, Old American Songs, which is a song, like American folk song kind of series that uh, I've been familiar with since I was a young kid. So when that first comes in, in, I think it's like percussion or maybe harp as she's getting her bath, um, I think it's hard, but I yeah. But yeah. Um, and and because of course the first I hear that melody and I think hush you babe don't you cry and so that made it even more powerful for me. Then the lyrics come in later for not everybody has the same musical background that I do. Um, so for me it's actually less powerful when they use the words, but I know sure. not everybody else knows the words. So it makes sense. Um, but but using lullabies for each of them to connect the children and their different experiences and the different type of lullaby that they each experience is one thing, but it also adds this element of who sings lullabies. It's parents. So what are the stories that these ch- these children are being told and taught by their parents, by the adults around them, and how how much can they help and how much do they placate? Um, it was just really powerful, I thought, and something I could easily just continue talking about all day. But as you just said, I've been talking for quite a while, so I'm going to throw it back over to you. Um, yeah, I, it just it was very... It was very powerful for me. Well, to pick up on a thread that you mentioned, and I think that that kind of helps me recontextualize some of the James stuff a little bit, is this idea of parents that you talk about, which isn't an element I had consciously keyed in on, but you mentioning it has me like running through the episode a little bit more. And so like this James episode of him having basically three parent figures but two particularly like male figures that he has to navigate surviving with between Noah and Cato is just you mean is Henry you said James Henry. sorry yeah i mean henry um that he has two father figures to navigate with in the survival method is helps recontextualize that a little bit for me again i still feel like it was kind of plot motivated Far more than uh, the others necessarily were. Elizabeth's section is very plot is very plot motivated, but the James and Tr stuff I feel is very much not plot motivated. But I think that that's a really astute point about the role that parents play because um, Reed Diamond's character is very front and center in this episode, and we haven't even talked about Ben yet. Right, 
So yeah. talk about Ben for a second. And, we, and when you talk about, or when I talk about, I should say, these lullabies, we see Ben find his mother, and she's there's this vision, this beautiful vision of her singing, and then we go to reality. And, right. And it's, again, it's another lullaby, for, I believe, from the time period. And, and so yes. this sense of art and music and lullabies as a coping mechanism, and to what extent is that a beautiful thing, and to what extent is that a devious um, or deceptive thing a lie don't you wish you could believe the lie sometimes right and i think that that idea of this believing the lie that you just said really ties into a lot of how ben's responding to a lot of stuff within the past couple of episodes mm-hmm. and his his idea that well he wouldn't have died if you had you know saved him dad and just this idea of scales falling from his eyes about the way the world works, the way reality works, the way his mom functions. Mm-hmm. But also, like, this understanding that he has of looking at the wall and putting pieces together really, really quickly. Of, well, that's where she would have gone. That's where the stage is. Yeah. It's just like, kid gets it. <laughs> yeah. Type of thing. And I think that that gets to a lot of, like, what's happening in this episode is very much kids get it. And I think that's a really powerful thing for a show to say that kids get it. Well, and how quickly and how how, how malleable and how quickly they understand um, before you realize that they're learning. Kids are always learning. Yes. They're always observing. They're always picking up on what you're modeling. And um, and the, the insidious nature of something like slavery, how you take a kid like TR and he sees like with what he sees in this episode you don't i didn't expect him to end the episode turning in sam for running away right but that's in the course of this episode he goes from someone who can be manipulated by ernestine to uh take the the beating like keep the everybody else from being beaten for the missing stamp to somebody turning in a runaway and and just like james goes from not fully understanding not wanting the water to picking, you know, 315, um, you know, the weight 315 in, in a day because he realizes he needs to. There isn't another choice. Yes. Um, so just how, how, how malleable and how just they're sponges. Kids are sponges. Um, the insidious cyclical nature of something like slavery um, in, a, in a society, you can't, you can't just expect that it's going to go away or it's not going to, uh, it's not going to just continue in perpetuity unless you make bold action. So you just get rid of it. Cause it's just, it's again, it, it's insidious. Right. And I mean, just not even like this concept of slavery, just this concept of institutional systematic racism. Yeah. That's built into the concept of slavery that there's just really no escaping from it without modeling some sort of escape from it. So this idea that, well, for TR, that my paw does whatever you want. So by that extension, I can do whatever I want is accurate and correct because he's a white male landowner in the late 1800s. By by the time that he would have been taken over the Macon plantation, it'd be the late 1800s, uh, if not early into the 1900s, depending on how long Reed Diamond's character <laughs> survives. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but this idea that he has, he recognizes on some level that he has the ability to change that. But then just this idea that it's being thrown back at him as, well, incrementalism, my friend, is how this is going to work. And it's just like, well, no, that's, that's, that's not soon enough. And mm-hmm. it's just like hugely allegorical, but also just hugely powerful on a character and an emotional level within the confines of the show, which again gets to why this episode just ripped our head out and then just kind of stepped on it a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The last things I'll mention, um, I would not have anticipated that they would be so comfortable offing characters the way that they have on the show. So uh, the making seven is now down to what four? Well, five. including Boo, Rosalie. We have Cato. We have Noah. We have Boo, and whom else? Henry. Is he alive? Do you think? Oh, I'm saying yes. I want it to I'm be also, yes. <laughs> I'm wanting it to be yes, but I'm also chalking up my wanting it to be yes to the fact that I watched this at seven o'clock. <laughs> Morning, Fair and enough. maybe I wasn't paying as close attention as I should have to that particular vignette. Yeah, we see him get shot. We see the the explosion behind him, but this yes. is TV. So I remember the explosion very explicitly. I don't remember him being shot, which is probably pretty telling. <laughs> so let's say four to be safe, but we're hoping for five. Yeah, and I certainly didn't expect them to kill Michael T. Williamson basically off screen um right but that's so bold yeah no i think it's great i think it it works really well and the last thing is something that um i I saw over at uh josh alston joshua alston wrote up this episode of the av club and there is in the comments there and in that review there was some discussion of uh elizabeth and uh this is basically the white couple um experiencing some like a, a taste of the the horrors that the slaves um, their slave counterparts are experiencing. So him getting whipped, her basically, basically being raped. She could have turned over the kid. Right. She, she had a choice. That's a, that's an astute observation from that commenter. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it was, I think it was Joshua, but I could be wrong. So I want to okay. go check it out at the AV club if you want to know for sure. Um, but, um, I think that being made like some realizing that through reading the the discussion over there um makes me much more down with the storyline we got with with him being beaten um and i i I thought that that was really powerful and when you know you know how much we love rape on tv the decision to keep that entirely implied off screen um works really really well because it's all from boo's point of view i think that was actually really powerful as well so I guess the only question left to ask Kate is what won your week in drama? Underground <laughs> clearly won my week in drama. Though the Americans was also really, really good and there are some other ones too. But yeah, for me it's definitely underground. It's another one of those best episodes of the year so far. Yeah, no, totally agree. Yeah. Now we'll take a break and come back with our week in genre.
weekend genre, we're going to talk about the Supergirl finale, Better Angels. Uh, then I'm going to talk a bit about Orphan Black, which had its premiere last week, The Collapse of Nature. I hadn't seen it when we recorded. Uh, so I'm going to talk a bit about that. I've seen part of this week's transgressive border crossing, but again, it's been a week, so I'm not caught up. But I, I will give thoughts on the premiere. Uh, then I'll talk a little bit about Outlander, not in Scotland anymore, before we dive in with the bulk of this section, which is Adventure Time, Lady Rainicorn in the Crystal Dimension, The Flash versus Zoom, and we'll wrap things up with The Hundred Demons. But first up, let's talk about the Supergirl finale. What did you think of the finale and how it took care of Myriad and brought the season, you know, did, did you think it brought it full circle? Or were you, you know, how do you end up feeling about season one of Supergirl? Well, to talk about the finale, it was basically just like, it was a very not, like, I can't believe I'm going to say it. It was a very not super great finale for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt very okay with it, but I think that also basically sums up how I felt about the season in general was... It had some really solid moments. But on the whole, I was just kind of like, okay, show. I'm hoping you get a season two so you have the summer to figure shit out. And mm-hmm. figure out, like, character dynamics, chemistry, how you need to, like, write for your cast maybe a little bit more. And that sort of thing. Um, and I think a lot of that was on display in this episode but at the same time and to kind of return to Amy Schumer and Hamilton when Jean and Kara went to go fight Brainiac 13 and Non I immediately went immigrants we get the job done <laughs> <laughs> yes um so basically my response to the Supergirl finale was Wow, look at this broadcast show touting the power of broadcast <laughs> mm-hmm. that also somehow invaded te- people's tel- computer monitors and don't think about it by no science. <laughs> don't think about it. Um, but the entire idea that like a little section of this show was devoted to Supergirl delivering a message of hope on broadcast television was so corny and cheesy, but I loved every second of Supergirl, like, hands hands folded like she was a news anchor. Mm-hmm. It was so great, because I love that kind of corny, superhero, we-can-be-better-together type of stuff. Yeah. And that's very much a part of what Supergirl has expressed in a number of episodes, but I've never really felt like he's really committed to. And watching it again, do it through this episode, I really, really liked a lot. Um, So I really liked that aspect of the episode. Um, But then I just kind of got bored because I don't care about Non, and I don't care about Brainiac 13, and I don't care about Myriad, and I don't care about any of that stuff. Because it just... I, I just, I didn't have a huge reason to care. And then Kara got saved by her sister in her own starship, and I went, Ooh. Yep. Because I loved that, because like we were talking about with Crazy Ass Girlfriend and Paula and Rebecca, it's just like, the Danvers sisters are the core relationship of this series. The men can stand to the left, <laughs> and that's all I need from that. And then... 
cat giving Kara her own her own office and then calling her Kara. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was just like <laughs> type of thing is basically just like I want all the men on this show to go the fuck away. <laughs> except so for Jean. Except for Jean. Be- but Jean is John exists in that very liminal space that women typically embody on these kind of action narrative shows. And I think that's really significant. And so I don't want John to leave because he offers a unique perspective on a number of things. But Wynn and James can just go the fuck away. Maxwell Lord can go away. Maxwell Lord getting its shenanigans with General Lane can go away. Nobody cares that he has an ultimate power source to undermine his own daughter. <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess. And she's like, no, men are terrible. And I just, if that's what the show wants to like explore is this idea of patriarchy being terrible, I'm all for it. But I could do with fewer men <laughs> on the show to explore that concept, at least on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, So I've been talking in a really rambling form and I blame the two and a half glasses of wine on that. But it was also just kind of a meh finale for me. And so I was looking for things to really respond to, and I also don't have any idea who the hell is, or what the hell is in the Kryptonian ship that crash land. I hope it's Crypto the Superdog. <laughs> that would be awesome. I think it's going to be Superboy, but it could be... It could right, be... no, it's totally going to be Superboy because of the whole Cadmus stuff. But, you know. But it... I also kind of don't care because I just want more of the Danvers sisters hanging out together and eating donuts and dumplings and mm-hmm. cat mentoring Kara and just, I want that stuff. Um, so I've been talking and I want more wine. Yeah. So I'll talk, talk about feminism. Me. Drink. Yeah. Talk, talk to me about feminism while so I drink my wine. The, the parts of this show that really work, at least for me yeah. as a woman working and as a feminist work incredibly incredibly well and the parts of the show they have figured out is cat grant and Kara. that is that right there that's a big thing they figured out they 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 were like on the way there really quickly actually in the show like the cat gets away from just being the one-dimensional bitchy boss pretty quickly in the series but um that's a huge part of the show that works i for me my personal headcanon is that she knows that uh that she's supergirl the car is supergirl and she might as well have said headquarters exclamation point on that office yes thank you totally but the the and the other part of the show that the other two parts of the show i should say that work really really well for me are the is the outsider narrative like you were saying of Kara and jean and the lost family and the found family the fact that they share a found family um, I think is very, very effective. Um, and then, like you said, the the Danvers sisters. And I feel about this show, the way, like the closest I can compare is Enlisted, which is a show that I adored um, back in the day that was the only show on TV, except at the time, maybe Parenthood. Um, the last season of Parenthood had a lot more sibling interaction than the previous seasons, at least that I have seen, had. Um, but Enlisted was a show about brothers fueled by honest and earnest and heartfelt love of one's siblings. And that is a thing that is, I think, incredibly rare on television. 
Um, we see it here with the Danvers sisters. And as I've said before, as someone who loves her sister, is my, as my best friend in the world, um, that speaks to me powerfully. Sure. I also love my brothers. Uh, but the sister but dynamic But not here, as much. <laughs> the sister dynamic on this show lets me relate that to my, my relationship with my sister. Um, but th- th- on TV, most of the time, either it's the notion of a found family... And so it, often their biological family is garbage, but they build their own family. And that can be really very powerful, like we saw in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. But a lot of the times, if there is a sibling dynamic, it's one of those, we need drama, so let's have characters be shitty to each other. And then they'll go, but we're family, so we have to like each other anyways, instead of actually showing that coming from a genuine place of respect and love and you know not doing those shitty things that drive drama and build suspense on a show um and and i think that's something that you see shown in supergirl just week in and week out yes they every now and again there's tension there's well she was about to kill you so i killed your aunt um and that's gonna be a drama for us but i think you can understand where i'm coming from and i wasn't trying to hurt you when i did that they they never try to hurt each other the way that a lot of characters on tv who are supposed to be really good friends do seem to intentionally hurt each other for for drama um and so for me while i wholeheartedly acknowledge the flaws with the show while i absolutely agree they have wasted jeremy jordan as win except for like in two episodes uh and uh i agree that this a lot of the stuff with lucy lane has not worked the way that i wish it would um the lot of stuff with james has just been really stretched out i can't help and i don't care to help Loving this show because it lets me see positive female relationships, see positive interactions with women that not are not defined by the standard bullshit uh, reasons to fight that a lot of TV likes to present, whether it's between women or just in general. Um, and, and that finds abs- has absolutely nothing sees absolutely nothing wrong with. Defining um, all the protagonists on the show, main protagonists, as women, um, and also the president is a woman, and God is a woman. You know, I think that's just, it's a nice bit of counterbalancing. And as someone who, as I've said before, and I said in this episode, my best friend is my sister. Any show that understands sisters the way that this show does and puts the respect and the, the love of this type of, of sisterly relationship there's lots of different types of sisterly relationships, but this one is, I think, underrepresented on TV. And so I, I just, I don't care. I don't care the things that it has wrong with it because the stuff it gets right speaks to me very powerfully. And I can't believe they haven't renewed it yet. They haven't renewed any of their freshman series, so don't feel too bad. I just, I think it's very, I think it's strange and I think they should just get off their hands about it. They've already cast Wonder. They've already cast Linda Carter to be the president next season, and yet we're holding on. Wait, uh, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, if they get a second season, did they really? If they get a second season, Linda Carter's going to play the president. That's a thing that has has been out there for a while. Jo- uh, Noel's doing <gasps> a happy dance, listeners. <laughs> So just green like the second season already. Because a, I love Linda Carter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so that, that's where I'm at with Supergirl. Um, it's been a while since there's a show that I fully admit is not a great show, but I don't care. Yeah. And, I mean, just, like, 
going much wider scope than Supergirl. Mm-hmm. And wider scope than just problems with Supergirl and any of that. It's just so much of how we talk about television now is very much grounded in ideas of quality and critical reception and ideological representation, whether or not that be political, racial, identity politics, etc., etc., etc. But this idea of the personal affect sometimes gets lost within those discourses, especially between, like, you and I are both critics, and that concept and that approach of the personal response to something can very easily get lost in this idea of, uh, I'm doing air quotes now, objectivity and unbiased, which, by the way, for anyone listening who holds those opinions that a critic should be objective and unbiased, those don't exist. Um, But this idea of a personal response to something overriding other flaws, I think is considered can be considered by some it's not considered by me so understand that i'm kind of building a straw man here um that that's somehow less respectable and that's totally false and totally incorrect to make that assumption because art should yes engage us intellectually but as i've said time and time again on a number of other things if something speaks to me or if something's just entertaining I'm willing to overlook a lot of stupid shit. <laughs> and I think that's okay. And I think that should be expected and accepted. And I think that we've run into this, and this has been kind of a running discourse within the past month when we've talked about things with, like, The 100 and in particular. It's mm-hmm. just like, yes, the show's a hot mess, and yes, it's doing one thing particularly correct, but this was a really powerful response that a number of people had that went well, no, this isn't okay. And in this case, it's the inverse of that, and this that this is very much okay for me. And me being Kate, not for me in particular, even though I agree with Kate that what Kate describes is, and I'm talking about you like you're not here, what you <laughs> describe is very much what works about the show for me, but on a different setting than it's working for you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just as significant, that it's working for you on that particular level. And I think that's really, really important in discussing the show and discussing how people talk about the show. And circling back to Supergirl as a whole, is that the show has steadily cultivated and encouraged that sort of a response from people just within its marketing. I mean, you think about the fact that so much of the lead up to the show and then steadily through social media as the show went on, that they showed Melissa Benonos meeting Girl Scouts and doing photo ops with them. And it's just like, this is a show that's very actively aware of that it wants to be a role model type of show for women, but particularly young girls who can watch the show at 8 o'clock on a Monday evening with their family. That's a lovely, beautiful, terrific thing that my complaints about not caring about non, not caring about Brainiac and 13, frankly, don't matter. 
if it's speaking to you in the way it's speaking, or if it's speaking to a little girl who's just like, I'm tired of Iron Man, and I'm tired of Thor, and I'm tired of Captain America, and I'd like a Black Widow movie for Pete's fucking sake, and but I get Supergirl every week. Mm-hmm. That's fucking huge and lovely and wonderful and all the more reason for there to be a season two. If I want to watch a show with very clear internal consistency, with compelling villains, with uh, intensity and a cynical worldview, there's a lot of them out there. Yes. If I want to watch a show about people who are earnestly interested in helping others who are good, kind people who are empowered in their life trying to to help others and for whom that desire to help others is not mocked is not is not overly criticized and is taken to be effective and to, to a kind of show where you can clap your hands and Tinkerbell lives there are very very few of those on TV right it's basically this show and Jane the Virgin right and we're sh- and Supergirl has a character who's just like well, clapping your hands is not going to help. And no one cares what you think, Maxwell Lord, because you created a Supergirl clone. Because <laughs> you're the worst. You're so the worst. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, so so I, I understand why, why people, some people don't like the show. I understand the criticisms. I agree with many of them. Um, but I just think the TV landscape is better off with Supergirl in it. And I, I just can't tell you i can't express to you how much i am looking forward to adorable small children cosplay at comic-con and kara and uh and i hope some of them dress up as kara and not necessarily supergirl because a that would be adorable but b how great of a takeaway is that idea Mm -hmm. (laughs) so good i hope you see some (laughs) yeah i don't worry there will be tweets if that happens. Um, let's move on to our next show, though. As much We've been talking about Supergirl for way too long. Way longer um, than we thought we would, I yeah. think it's fair to say. <laughs> yeah, yep, yep. Uh, but fair enough. Um, now let's move on to Orphan Black, which had its premiere, uh, The Collapse of Nature. And I'm going to keep this short because I know, Noel, you don't watch Orphan Black. But I pretty much loved this premiere. So all the problems with season three, they were like, I know what we need. More clones. Let's have dude clones. That's not why we watch. That was the big arc in season three. So they killed pretty much all those guys at the end of season three. And this season they go, mm, prequel first episode. So we get the character who dies in the pilot is the main character of this premiere. Which lets them bring back other characters who have died. Which lets them uh, fill in some gaps. And, and lets them develop new characters while maintaining, while giving them a history within the show that doesn't feel like a cheat. So instead of having somebody show up and be like, I knew Beth. You just never, she never talked about me because she died before she talked to you. Yes, that's why. Um, we get to see them interact. We get a much stronger sense of who Beth was without uh, color coding or without painting over where she's headed. Um, where we know that she will find herself, which is the, you know, where she committed suicide, as, as happens in the pilot. Um, but I just think it's so smart. It, it's just it's such a good idea. They they completely can all the, the Lita stuff that was not working in the previous season. They go back to Neolution, which 
could easily go wrong, go awry. That wasn't always a great story point for them. But hey, they're trying something different, and I like what they're doing so far. So I just think that is such a heartening response to the to to how season three turned out. So I'm really looking forward to to how the season continues. The second episode jumps forward so we get uh, by the end of the premiere they've tied the um the prequel stuff into the current storyline um effectively and it looks like we're gonna be going back and forth at least somewhat through the season and uh i just think it's really really smart and most importantly shows an awareness of the what the strengths of the show are and what they're not um so can, you know, congratulations orphan black i am super back on board after being sort of tepid about this upcoming season, I'm much, much more excited. So, yay, Orphan Black. Yay, hashtag Clown Club. Um, next up is Outlander, not in Scotland anymore. And I'm mostly mentioning this because I, because that red dress is insane. Um, have you seen the pictures of the red dress, Noel? I have not. Oh, my goodness. You need to do a quick Googling. Outlander, Claire, red dress. It'll pull up and it's just like, it's insane. It's ridiculous. Okay. Um, I wanted to specifically mention I'm loving the Baroque scoring. It's just making me want to play, like, call people together. It's just, like, do a summoning of musicians so that I can play some Baroque music in Baroque style because uh, it's beautiful and lovely and very very specific style. So I love that they're going with that. They're really going all in with that with uh, the French court. Um, the... The stuff in the future, uh, they continue to balance all of that very well. And... Um, while the there are certain well, elements hello, that, red dress yes, yeah right that is worth talking about <laughs> that's a dress worth talking about tip of the cap anyway, to the costume sorry department. continue <laughs> yeah yeah it was actually a bit like it looks so great from the like the, the shot of her illuminated with the light behind her yes um, that when you see it front on it's just sort of like how is that staying on because when you're looking up it makes it look like there's a lot more bodice to it than there sure. actually actually is. is right <laughs> yeah yeah but um hey you know whatever it's 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 the french court that feels about right um but anyways i, I like the way that they're continuing the season and i had to mention just the costuming and the music um which is particularly notable in not in scotland anymore i'll probably have more thoughts on outlander in a week where we have less or fewer shows to discuss but let's move on swiftly to adventure time lady rainicorn in the crystal dimension what did you think about this one well as I said, I think a couple of weeks ago, I was really excited about this episode because we haven't spent a lot of time in the Crystal Dimension. We spent a lot of time in other places, um, so I was excited to get some time in the Crystal Dimension, and this episode didn't disappoint in, we got to spend a lot of time in the Crystal Dimension. <laughs> um, but we also got to spend some time with TV, uh, mm-hmm. one of uh, Jake and um, Lady's kids. Who has been the neglected child? Of you mean the... you mean Tina? I can't yes, not hear I... Tina. Right? No, it's uh, voiced by uh, Dan Mintz. Yeah, I think that's yeah. right. Yeah, uh, who does Tina on uh, Bob's Burgers? Who had a really great episode this week? Um, it was just a really funny episode. Uh, uh, so go watch that real quick um, after Bob's, you're done yeah. listening to us. And, um, so no, so we got TV and we got History of Lady, which I feel like is the first time we've had that. Mm -hmm. And like a rebel ex-boyfriend and just, (laughs) it was a lot of fun. Like, I really enjoyed Lady in flashbacks wrapped up in a political maelstrom of hating dogs 
and just all of this was just really silly and really funny and entertaining. I even liked the fact that it kind of felt like a Korean pop musical, <laughs> which was appropriate. And this was also the first time I feel like Lady had subtitles because I guess they decided we needed them this week. And I don't necessarily think that we did, but we yeah. got them anyway. Um, but it was just a fun little episode that I was really glad that we got. And I liked the ending of the episode. Like, all of Jake's kids have found things that work for them. And TV is just like, no, Ma, I'm going to stay in the Crystal Dimension and kind of grow up a little bit. No, no, I'm just going to stay with Grandma and Grandpa. <laughs> that actually made me so happy. Because can you imagine your daughter just, like, disappears one day and then... Who, who never comes back because she's hiding out to protect the the universe or whatever. Yeah, uh, at least they get to they get to spend some time with their grandson. That's I cool. don't know that they look particularly excited about that though. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but uh, so, what did you think about uh, uh, this episode? Um, yeah, I thought it was fun. Um, I thought I, I liked getting backstory on Lady and her feeling like a char- more of a character. Yes, um, that I think that's that's nice to do. Um, and. And, and again, have a life in a world outside of Jake and outside of the rest of the, you know, outside of her family, about her kids. So she's got a backstory. She is also a defender of the universe, as it were. And um, that that worked really well. And just the visual of Lee on his scooter was just delightful. Like the, all the bends, you know, and in, 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 in his rainicorn body and like the, the leather jacket is just just ridiculous enough to really work for me so yeah i really enjoyed it no i did too uh it lived up to my expectations that i had just based on the title which is lady rain accord and the crystal dimension and i got plenty of both so i was very deeply satisfied (laughs) well let's move on to our next show uh swiftly on fitting because we're going to the flash next versus zoom my main question for you do you still think that it is a J? of some sort inside the mask or do you think it's Barry what or Wally I'm increasingly thinking it's Wally because apparently Jay Garrick is just something Hunter Zolomon made up to fuck with the citizens of Central City which Kate I need you to talk about this a little bit more because I'm just going to rage about all of Hunter Zolomon's ridiculousness because mm-hmm. while I was entertained by this episode on a number of levels, all the plot stuff and all the random things that the episode tried to do to explain Hunter Zolomon just made my head hurt in not positive ways. <laughs> so what did you think about versus Zoom? What did you think about Barry losing his powers again? I think on the whole it worked. Um, I was okay with it. Uh, I'm not super intrigued by Barry losing his powers, but um, the discussion of Wally and really incorporating him into the family I think works very nicely um, and is is effective. Uh, I don't buy Zoom going after Wally when he could just go after any of the other people and get the same... Like, that feels... That's that's too much distinct. Well, we want to make a thematic parallel to fathers and sons um, for me. But, you know, I guess I'll give it to him. 
as for Hunter Zolomon, uh, Sears continues to be entertaining. I think he's doing a good job with what he's given. But if Charlie Manson shaved his beard and cleaned up his hair, we would still know what he looked like. So when, you know, it's one thing with the Flash because he very clearly uh, makes manipulates his face with, like, the vibrations in his voice so people can't recognize, I don't know what he looks like. But but Wells, Harrison Wells uh, from Earth 2, was able to say, that's Jay Garrick, that's the Flash, uh, meaning the entirety of Earth 2 knows what he looks like, and no one was like, hey, he looks bizarrely like that really famous serial killer. That we did a podcast about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that, there's some serious, uh, you know, like, drive a truck through them holes in this episode. Right, so let's talk about, let me talk about those holes. Because I had issues with those holes. It was just like, all right, first of all, the crazy serial killer decides that he wants to with Central City by creating a hero for them that will then disappoint them. Okay. But then is then that I could kind of understand because that's such a syndrome thing to do. Oh, totally syndrome, yeah. <laughs> but I convinced my time room in itself to die on the plan, and I just went, no. 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 Because, first of all, it just means it's the time room episode that we got that explained the reverse Flash origin stuff a little bit was basically just set up to justify this corner that the show had written itself into. <laughs> and just make them be twins. That works so or much better. just make it that you convinced Hunter Zolomon from Earth 1 to do this. That's yes. all you needed to do. But no, it needed to be a time remnant guy? No. Mm-hmm. That didn't make any sense. Or like, I <laughs> tricked him and didn't. he didn't know I was going to kill him. You know? Yes. And yeah. then this gets into a lot of other small things of, wait, so which Hunter Zolomon was Caitlin romancing the entire time? Was it both of them? Was it one of them? Oh, this is kind of gross if it was both of them. And she didn't notice. And you she know. didn't notice? <laughs> yeah. And it's not great. And again, like you said, Sears is doing a bang-up job with this. And to get to, like, what you mentioned about this father and sons, like, this episode hit home hard. One of the Flash's big things about the power of family, and this is a big thing in, like, Greg Belanti's shows in general that Arrow could frankly draw more heavily from. Um, But... The episode, I felt like, did a really nice job of saying, all right, the power of family is so great that it outweighs Hunter's, well, you're just, we're a lot alike, you and I. And and first of all, no, never supervillains say that. But at the same time, the episode did a really nice job of demonstrating that by juxtaposing... Nora Allen's murder with Ashley Zolomon's murder, and thank goodness Ashley Zolomon had a name as opposed to just being Mrs. Zolomon. Yeah. Because I was really worried that she was just going to be Mrs. Zolomon and she got Mm -hmm. a name. I was just like, well, someone's paying attention. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
and I thought that that actually worked really well. And then Cisco's whole concern about going Vader, mm-hmm. that scene was basically the best scene in the entire episode. For me, well, anyway. And they treated it with such respect, which I so appreciate. Yes! They didn't be like, aha, silly pop culture references. But see, no, no actual specific touch point that it makes sense for him to reference. Yes. Which gets to, like, some of Legends of Tomorrow's specific pop culture references that don't make any sense for their particular characters that are making them, but exist because we want to appeal to this this audience. Anyway... It was very significant, and it drove home this idea of the power of family, I think, in a much greater way than I'm going to give up my speed for Wally made, in part because we all know Barry's going to get his speed back within an episode at the most two. And this all leads me to a big question that is causing me anxiety about the end of the season, and I'm really curious to hear your thoughts about how you're feeling about as we enter this last phase of the season, is last season I had a very clear sense of what Eobard slash Harrison wanted to achieve. He wanted to go home, he wanted to kill the Flash, and who doesn't want to kill the Flash? (laughs) But he wanted to go home, he wanted to get back to his timeline. He had been stranded here for 20 years, And it was kind of messing with him a little bit. He was kind of starting to feel good about helping people and mentoring these people. And it was just getting really confusing for him. And it made for really interesting, dramatic stuff. What the f*** does Zoom want to achieve now that he has the Flash's speed? And what is that that he wants to achieve that he cannot achieve within an episode considering he is now literally the fastest man on two earths crazy guy be crazy that's that's it there's no and that's just, not like, interesting it's not interesting no he, he just wants his consuming need to get well i mean I, I guess the idea was that he was dying because he right. needed actual life yes. uh, or, and that know, was time fine. force yes yeah, so, so well, what now does he do now yeah, but now he doesn't want anything because they haven't established him as a character because he spent all season pretending to be somebody else. When he was on screen... They, they cared more about the twist than they did setting up, making sure that we knew who he was or that they knew who he was. Um, I mean, maybe they do have a stronger sense of him, but it's not coming through if that's the case. So, right. uh, yeah, I mean, there's stuff here that I do really like. I like the stuff we get with Iris where she's not sure if she like where to place how she's feeling about Barry in her just myriad of confusing emotions about, you know, this is basically her brother for a long time, but he loves her and she really cares for him. And the future says that they end up together and this other, so does, can she actually trust her emotions or is she just doing what she thinks she's supposed to do and what she knows would make Barry happy and she does care for him so much and let's be honest it's TV so they're all really really pretty um I think that's an interesting discussion to start to have I'm sure that that'll come to a head by the end of the season I think that's good but uh I don't know there's I'm I'm, I would like it to be better yes no I I oh there I go drink um (laughs) is that I agree with all of that and I even, like, agree with the Iris and Barry stuff, which I feel like is something that has been playing through this season, but hasn't been playing, like, forward enough for me. 
But I also think it's a more interesting riff than the stuff that's going on with, like, Kendra and Ray and Legends of Tomorrow, which, when you watch this week's Legends of Tomorrow, you're going to pull your hair out because it's just the same shit. Um, and significant that we've had for the past three episodes on that show, and it's still not interesting. But this is something that is could be interesting, and once the sh- once the Flash decides to commit to it, I'm really eager to see it engage it in a really productive way. And I want it to do that. But my concern is that so much of making Zoom fascinating within the next five episodes is going to take up the next four, four episodes, is going to take up a lot of oxygen. And I think that the other concern I have resumes motivations and everything is that the show based on this line that zoom actually says out loud on the episode is you wouldn't believe me if i told you (laughs) who was in the mask and i almost paid i swear to god i get paid to write about this show and i almost turned the show off and walked away because that just hurt my soul because it just means that that mask doesn't have any point other than to obscure his face for the sake of a reveal. And no, just no. Mm-hmm. I was just glad that Barry asked about right. that. But then it's just like, no, we're going to dodge this for a couple more episodes to draw out our big reveal. And that's where I'm concerned that the show's like putting some of his ships forward for maybe season three. But at this point, I'm just like, you you not giving any, like, sort of a hint about that, apart from, like, the tap code, really irritates me. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, at this point, it can basically only be Wally, because otherwise, why is there a mask on his face? Yeah. Because it yep. can't be Henry, because Henry's happy in Atlantis with Nora right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. It can't be Joe because Joe's dead. Can't be Cisco's because Cisco's dead. Yeah, we've seen Barry. So. <laughs> we've seen Barry. Unless it's somebody out of time or from a third Earth. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. But I, I I'm actively not looking forward to it now. Mm-hmm. And that makes me upset. No. Oh. Well, hopefully they can turn it around um in the next couple episodes. Um <laughs> I guess that's a good way to that's an excellent over... segue to the hundred. To the hundred, yeah. Uh, the episode this week is demons. I really have very little to say about this one. Um, I know that the aesthetic really worked for some people. Uh, yeah, but I, I'm not a slasher person, so I sure. just didn't really care uh, that much. I think that it was effective in really establishing. No, no, no. It has to be a nightblood for for eight you know alley two or whatever definitely got it, it has to be a night blood uh works well just fast forwarding through the polis stuff and just being like nope they're part of the city of light brings the the narratives in together nicely um uh, even though uh it it might do it might be actually a little too neat for my taste but um on the whole i think we're supposed to be very tied in with with clark here and aside from again killing off sinclair and confirming that you definitely have to be a nightblood to get any information out of that chip um this really felt like a uh, kind of just waiting a week yes so let's talk about those slasher horror conventions for a minute kate 
I don't really actively like horror films, but I appreciate their aesthetics and I appreciate what they do in part because I took a class on body genres in college and it helped me to appreciate horror in a way that I just didn't actively like. I have very particular types of horror that I like. And the slasher genre is one that can work for me in certain settings basically any time up until Scream 2 is basically okay with me. And then anything after that I'm not interested in. But let's talk about the show's deployment of the horror, of horror genre and slasher genre. And say that it was effective, but that it also made no fucking sense for Emerson to put a music box out there to distract them. Other than the fact that it was creepy... But it made no diegetic sense and completely broke the episode. And I just went, The Hundred, you've been a dumpster fire for a while, and now you're just leaning into it? <laughs> like, what are you doing? Like, no, A, no one cares about your anger issues, Emerson. No one cares. B, Emerson, there are many ways to scare people. But you have no concept of horror movie cliches being locked in a mountain. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you don't know. They had a lot of art. Maybe they also had films. Diegetically, Emerson. (laughs) Fair enough. You have no concept of horror movies. So all of that was there for the audience, but none of it was there for the characters. And I hated that. I hate that kind of bullshit where we're going to do a slasher-themed episode that makes no sense within our story universe, or any sort of genre homage that makes no sense within our narrative universe. I hate that kind of thing. It's indulgent, and it's boring, and it just betrays the show, and regardless of what the show is, it betrays the show's intentions and the characters. And the other thing about a slasher narrative... Anyone could die, and they killed the vaguely ethnic guy again, Kate. Yeah, yeah, they did. They did kill another person of color. And it's just like, no! And I get it. Sinclair is like the oldest person there right now, so of course, naturally, he's going to die. Mm-hmm. But he no! He like passed on his Latin knowledge, you know? Yes! And it's just like, no! Show, no. So, basically, everything at Arcadia was a small disaster for me. <laughs> um, all the stuff at Polis um, is, in fact, as you said, way too neat. Like, it just, it happens way too easily and way too quickly. And, yeah, I just, I'm, I'm frustrated by the fact that now Kane, Pike, and that little traveling band of grounders and then all the rest of the 19, 20-year-olds that survived the slasher film, which, by the way, no 18, 20-year-olds survive a slasher film. <laughs> At least two of them die. Um, are going to come into a city of alley zombies. And I'm not excited about this, and I should be. <laughs> because I've been championing this alley plot for, like, since before we even knew her name. And I'm just like, I don't... This was too easy. <laughs> this was too neat. And 
I just hope Murphy isn't indoctrinated. <laughs> but no, so this was very much like a waiting-based episode. I don't like using the term filler, but it really applied this week in the negative sort of way. And yeah. that's what I can say about demons. Yeah, that feels... You know, like I can't really argue... With that, we only have four episodes left, and I'm, I'm assuming we'll have like a two-part finale. We have some sense of um, of Clark being guided by Lexa, so we'll probably get her like having a night blood transfusion or something, so she can take the chip. Um, but uh, that's a good theory. That'll take like two episodes, so they have to find Luna still, and then you know there's. There's some more stuff to happen, but yeah, the like I didn't mind Sinclair being killed off, even though I like that that character, I like that actor, um, except that you know this again, it goes back to Mo Ryan's piece from last week right. or the week before. Anyone can die, you know who's not gonna die? Clark's all not the gonna young die. people. Well, Clark's not gonna die. Bellamy's not gonna die. Octavia's not gonna die. Clark's mom's not gonna die, and. Uh, Oh, Kane's not going to die. So all the white people aren't going to die on this show. Right. And all and the other people, maybe. Maybe. But, I mean, as soon as they killed Sinclair, I went, at least they didn't kill Miller. The gay black guy. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> and they didn't kill Brian. The white gay guy. <laughs> but, small consolation. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I don't really have anything else on, on the hundreds. I feel like we should wrap up here, right? Let's take the small consolation, I guess, she said, choking down some bile. And and instead move on to what wins your week in genre, Noel? Um, I'll give it to Adventure Time of the stuff that we discussed. But I kind of like this week's Fear of the Walking Dead a little bit. Um, Just in terms of... It did a nice job. It didn't have the people from the walkie-talkie and the CB radio show up, which Mm -hmm. was actually kind of vaguely refreshing. And the conversations about survival and morality and family and all that kind of stuff was actually, I thought, really well executed this week. Um, So I liked that episode. But um, in terms of just overall appreciation, it's totally Adventure Time and uh, the Crystal Dimension and Lady Rainier Unicorn. Uh, What about you? What won your weekend genre? I'm going to give it to the Orphan Black premiere from last week. Okay. Um, with an honorable mention, I guess, to Supergirl. I think that's fair. It yeah. feels about right, so that's what I'll go with. Um, now, a few show notes here at the end of the podcast. You can find a post-up for this episode at theteleverse.org, which is the website for the podcast. You can also find this episode uh, in iTunes, where we have an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed. You can also find us in Google Play. You can also find us on Stitcher, the M4A feed, that is. Hopefully, we'll have the MP3 feed up soon. And please do uh, rate and review us there. I know, like, on Stitcher, I think you have to have at least five or ten or something ratings before it'll even show up that like people should listen to this podcast maybe right and you can't even review stuff on google play so it's okay just listen to us there and subscribe subscribe (laughs) um but you can yeah so so if you if if, you know a few of our listeners would go over and and give us a review or something on stitcher uh we'd appreciate that um you can also find us on facebook where you can like the page start up a conversation if you so wish or you can email the televerse at gmail.com or find us both on twitter i'm at the televerse and noel you are at noel rk 
You can find my writing at the AV Club, where you will see weekly reviews of The Path and starting Sunday, Veep. So glad it's back. Uh, and Noel, how about you? You can find my writing over at TV.com, and starting next week, the entire Arrowverse is back, and I'm reviewing all three of those shows. And I'll still be reviewing Good Wife for the next four weeks, kind of against my will, but I'm also not being paid for those, so it's my own damn fault. What are you going to do in the summer when you actually, like, don't have three shows that you're vaguely antagonistic towards that you're reviewing? Or four shows, I should say, that you're reviewing It's three shows, because I'm not vaguely antagonistic towards The Flash, but Kate, really, this podcast is what's going to get me through the summer of talking (laughs) about television, because I don't get paid during the summer, typically, because... Not enough shows do well enough to justify uh-huh. a freelancer fee, so a lot of those shows get pushed to Tim and Caitlin, typically. Uh-huh. Um, so, because we, we try to save the budget for the fall, which makes sense. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so um, expect really strong opinions about Unreal this summer, guys. Yep. Yeah. Look forward to it. Yeah, because who is it? Back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, that wraps up our week in TV. So now, Noel and I raise our glass once more to you listeners. Hope you had fun uh, listening and maybe drinking along. And now we'll go to our DVD shelf with friend of the show, Emily L. Stevens from the AV Club, talking about Alfred Hitchcock Presents. We'll be right back after this. <laughs> Good evening. I'm Alfred Hitchcock, and tonight I'm presenting the first in a series of stories of suspense and mystery called, oddly enough, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. I shall not act in these stories, but will only make appearances, something in the nature of an accessory before and after the fact to give the title to those of you who can't read and to tidy up afterwards for those who don't understand the endings. Tonight's playlet is really a sweet little story. It is called Revenge. It will follow... Oh dear, I see the actors won't be ready for another 60 seconds. However, thanks to our sponsor's remarkable foresight, we have a message that will fit in here nicely. We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsuk, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. And this week on the DVD shelf, it's time for another blast from the past. And I am excited to be talking uh, a little classic TV. We've been a little more recent or more modern uh, on recent weeks. So I'm glad we're getting a little further back in the archives. And joining us to help us talk about a little classic TV, returning to the podcast, Emily Stevens from Emily, Emily L. Stevens, I should say, very specifically from the AV Club. Emily, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. We're going to be talking Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which is a show I remember. I, I, I That credit sequence and like the opening and the theme song and everything is etched in my brain. So I'm sure I must have watched quite a lot of this um, as, a, as a kid on like PBS because I know we watched the hell out of the PBS mystery, like murder, like Thursday murder mystery nights. Um and I don't actually remember watching episodes prior to this DVD shelf, but I know that credit sequence so well, I feel like I must have. Does that make sense? 
Uh, That was going to be my first question to you is, have you ever seen it before? And did you see it as a child? Because that was my introduction to Alfred Hitchcock Presents. It was in syndication when I was a child and I would watch a couple of episodes every weekend. And yeah, the the credit sequence, the funeral march for a marionette is the name of the piece. Yes. And that really distinctive, simple line drawing the Hitchcock drew of himself and then his silhouette steps into it and eclipses it on the screen. That's all such a big part of, of, of my consciousness of the show. And I'm not at all surprised to hear that it is of yours as well. Noel, have you, have you ever seen the show before? Um, I watched it uh, for the first time, let's see, uh, four years ago um, for a roundtable discussion that we did at a site I used to run called This Was Television. Uh, we watched Breakdown as part of our um, uh, like spooky spooky show week theme week that we did for um, old TV. So we watched Breakdown, and that was my first exposure to uh, watching Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Though I think I had seen, like, like Kate, I think I had seen episodes, or at least the opening, for sure. Um uh, a couple of different places and different times, but never watched the show in a dedicated way. It was so interesting for me to discover that this was a show with 360 episodes, because that, first of all, is insane. It's just crazy talk. But um, that's spread out over 10 seasons, um, and of course they made seasons with a lot more episodes back in the day, um, per year, I should say. Um, but But also, it's really interesting to me because in so many ways, this should be in, right there in my consciousness alongside uh, The Twilight Zone, which is a series I love. It has so much in common with it as far as the format and the, the narrator and the short story approach. Um, and yet, as much as I did enjoy the series, and we're going to dive in with it here, for me, I kept going, unfortunately, for Alfred Hitchcock Presents, it's not fair to the show. I kept going back to The Twilight Zone and thinking about ways that it was similar to The Twilight Zone, but I liked The Twilight Zone more. Um, and and so the way that I feel like even The Twilight Zone has, has fallen away from a lot of the public consciousness uh, discussions of TV. Every now and again, somebody will say, like, oh, well, yes, well, of course, one of the all-time greats is The Twilight Zone, but nobody ever really talks about it. Um, and it seems like it has even more for Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Um, so it was very informative for me to, to look at it and see, like, no, 360 episodes, lots and lots of fantastic actors. Pretty much every episode is going to have at least one familiar or interesting face. Um, and, and a lot of really memorable episodes. And yet this was this giant blind spot for me. I'm interested to hear you compare it to the Twilight Zone. Again, it also falls into that slot for me. I, it's not going to come as a big surprise to anybody that I was kind of a weird kid. And so <laughs> there was there was a block of programming. I remember this so vividly on Saturdays. I would watch in the middle of the day, there was an episode of The Twilight Zone, and then I changed channels, and there would be two episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and then some weeks I could switch over to another channel, and there was a Boris Karloff's thriller, and I I mean, I wasn't an outdoor kid, that doesn't surprise (laughs) anyone. Uh, But, so they're all kind of locked into this uh, circle for me of shows that I watched all the time, And yeah, there are so many hundreds of episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And then later it got reformatted into an hour-long show, the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. Uh, And they did 
I don't know, I think it was 200 and some of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents half hour format and then uh, a lot more, dozens more of the Alfred Hitchcock hour. But yeah, the the repetition of the theme song, the repetition of Alfred Hitchcock's really droll introductions are such a core element to a show that otherwise changes every single week. And I think that's what really appeals to me about it is that it recreates itself every week, even though you do see the same directors over and over again, the same short story writers, the same same people writing the teleplays very often, same teams of writers working on the teleplays, and a lot of the same stable of actors reappearing. But the show itself is refreshed every week. I think you really hit on something interesting I hadn't considered about the difference between Alfred Hitchcock Presents and The Twilight Zone, which is The Twilight Zone is really allegorical, obviously, but it's also, it also has a very strong moral core and Alfred Hitchcock Presents does not. It really rejects the moral core that you might see in a Twilight Zone episode. Um, One of the, one of the key characteristics of those bumpers, those Alfred Hitchcock uh, bookends of every episode, he introduces you to the story And then the story plays out. And very often the story plays out with the villain getting away with something. And then Alfred Hitchcock comes in and reassures you that they got caught. Don't worry about it. They got caught. You didn't see it. But it happened off screen. And that's the kind of thing that really couldn't happen. It could happen on the Twilight Zone, but it couldn't happen with that level of amusement it would be a dire moral consequence and not a wink at the audience it's interesting to me to think about the the two shows um compared to each other because of that opening um the way that they both open because i feel like alfred hitchcock introduces the alfred hitchcock presents he introduces the show or the story of the week but I feel like Rod Serling narrates the yes. Twilight Zone, and I That's feel like a great distinction. Yeah, I feel like it's an important distinction um, because it, there's a there's a remove um, with with um, Hitchcock. They both have a little bit of a you know, like maybe a twinkle in their eye, <laughs> but with with Hitchcock, it's it's buried down. It's it's he's much more detached and. Um, yeah, it's, it's like you said, there's not that more moral code to Hitchcock presents. I would say the show has its own morality. Um, and it it is that people are expected to kill each other and, <laughs> you know, like could just random violence. And, you know, the, the, the world in which Alfred Hitchcock presents lives, um, ev- all the neighbors are going to kill each other and yeah. probably you. Yes, and you want to move in like a couple of months after watching this show. Exactly, exactly. That's so because of that, and I, I maybe it's just because the episodes that I sampled, I was wanting there to be more tonal <laughs> variety in the show, and and there's some some are more comedic, some are more uh, dramatic, but th- that actually was a bit of a hurdle for me. And I'm curious, um, maybe Noel, you can jump in here, um, if you experience that at all, or what you think about this contrast in tones. Um, well, I didn't have an issue with the, more so it was about 
for me, the idea of the act of the murder wasn't so much what I was interested in, but I was interested in seeing how the story kept twisting on itself to see how they would maybe get caught or at the very least get away with it prior to the bumper where Hitchcock assures us that, oh no, don't worry, she she tried to kill her second husband that way too and got caught. <laughs> uh, the dog was really a detective. Right. <laughs> um. So that... I was always more involved in, like, the twist to see how things would go. And I watched the episodes that Emily recommended for us. And then I watched a couple of the episodes from uh, Robert David Sullivan's Inventory that was on AV Club. Um, So a few of those. And so there's, like, One Mile to Go has a guy who impulsively kills his wife and then just can't get rid of the body because the cop won't let him go. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, it's... it's funny in this way that you're like rooting for this guy to dispose of this body, but this perfectly nice cop keeps harassing him to get his taillight fixed or return his change because it's 1958 and people, cops are running you down to return your change. <laughs> and so I never really got too much and worried about the, um, the tonal issues. I was more so interested in seeing where the twist was. If you wanted, Kate, um, one of the episodes that Robert included in his inventory was The Glass Eye from uh, Season 3. If you want uh, a little kind of fun little twist, um, I would recommend that one, um, where murder is not at the center of that and has a really nice little surprise ending and has, um, you know, um, Shatner uh, narrating the episode in a flashback. Mm. So, no, um, the tonal issues never, the to- repetitiveness of it didn't bother me. But I think a lot of it also just had to do with the fact that this is something Hitchcock is so invested in exploring in his films. This idea of the wrong person at the wrong time, or this every man thrown into extraordinary circumstances. And murder is an extraordinarily extraordinary circumstance that people do impulsively, people plan, or so forth and so on. And it takes that extra step, that extra move to murder someone, basically. And he's so interested in exploring what that means. And so that's the other reason why I wasn't, like, too... I don't want to say bored, because I don't want to imply that you were bored, but just a little repetitive didn't bother me, because... Hitchcock is so invested in this idea that I just wanted to see how he and his writers and everything played with it each and every episode. Yeah, I feel like this is the sh- a show that I was having trouble like mainlining it because sure. of the similarity, but I also feel like this is the kind of show where if I'm in the right headspace, I could watch 30 of these over the course of a weekend, you know? Um, and right. it just sort of fall into the hypnoticism of that theme and that introduction and the outro every time. Like, I was getting so much delight just out of the Alfred Hitchcock throwing to commercial, <laughs> right? <laughs> How hilarious is that? Um, it's it, it just so, and now our fine, you know, the fine makers of this program, oh no, the actors aren't ready. Well, fortunately, we have just the thing ad. <laughs> it's just, for me, it's just, we have these conceptions of certain uh, artistic presences or creative people as great fill in the blanks and it's just like it's alfred hitchcock one of the most celebrated american um directors selling you some fill in the blank selling you some butter or some house cleaning supplies or a new car uh, do you know who the yeah. sponsor was emily for this off chance 
Um, you know, I think it was different for different episodes. Most of the okay. ones that the ones that I recommended to you, uh, I was watching on Hulu or on Netflix, and so the sponsorships got cut out of those. But in yeah. fact, today I just watched one that's not available on any of the streaming services. I found a you know a bootleg of it on YouTube, and I noticed the um, the credit sequence, the title card is different. It was Alfred Hitchcock presents brought to you by I can't remember who and Clairol. Okay. And I think I think that they changed from time to time. Sure. Uh, but you know, actually, I have the Wikipedia entry in front of me, so let me just do a quick search to see. Um, yeah, I don't see a specific sponsor. I think they had different ones at different times. I do remember reading that um, there was an episode that was cut from, I think, the fifth or sixth season. The finale, the season finale was rejected by the sponsor. And I remember reading that the sponsor was Revlon. Okay. So the sponsor changed from time to time. Right. That makes sense. I was just curious because so much of his outro is, as Kate said, just kind of winking and jabbing and just really fun and light. And I, one of the things I mentioned um, when we talked about Breakdown at um, This Was TV was the sheer pleasure of watching Hitchcock talk about the episode right before it started just made me go, well, what if Ryan Murphy just showed up before an episode of American Horror Story to discuss what was going to happen that week? I know how we feel about shows discussing other shows after they end. <laughs> right. But, I mean, just to, like do a little intro to the episode and then do a little outro. I mean, his, his shows are anthology serialized as opposed to anthology standalone uh but i just it would be interesting to put like the brand out there i think in a in a very different way because i mean the extent that we get is like whomever pbs is contracted to do a quick little intro to the masterpiece these days or you get robert osborne or um what's his name mankowitz um discussing a movie before and after on turner classics but that kind of sense of a host is gone for the most part and i think there's just something really compelling and interesting if you get the right kind of host with the right kind of tone and hitchcock's persona just fits so well on tv as well absolutely for sure. He's definitely a big part of the appeal of the series. But of course, it was also common at the time for particularly for anthology series, I think, to have a famous host who didn't necessarily yes. have anything to do with the production of yeah. that particular episode, you know, who hadn't written it, who hadn't directed it, introducing yeah. the series every yeah, no. so that you have a consistent voice. Yeah, it was pretty common, Yeah. And uh, I, I want to ask, Breakdown, that's the Joseph Cotton episode? Yes. Yes, that's a great episode. I actually thought about including that as a recommendation. You know, coming up with just a handful of episodes to recommend was really tough. And it, it really illuminated to me some stuff about the series that I hadn't, I hadn't consciously noticed. So I know that one of the ones I recommended was Lamb to the Slaughter. That's yes. based on a Roald Dahl story. It's probably the most iconic of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes. Uh, it's uh, It stars Barbara Bel Geddes as a devoted and pregnant housewife of a police officer who is suddenly faced with a much more pressing question than what to make for dinner when her husband comes home and announces he's leaving her. Yeah. Uh, how much of the plot do we want to share with your listeners? 
Well, I kind of already spoiled it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, because that's the thing. I actually really enjoyed the way that most places that I looked online for recommendations actually avoided saying what the actual twists were. And I think that works really well for this show. Yeah. Um, So for most of these, I don't think we would necessarily want to get into it. But when you're watching this one, because I... I didn't read up on this particular episode before I watched it because I didn't want to have anything spoiled for me. And by the first, like, three minutes, I'm like, she's going to kill him with the with the meat. <laughs> That's what's, She's been talking about how it's frozen. He keeps going on about how there's nothing he can do to stop – she can do to stop him from leaving. I'm like, she's she's got a giant hunk of meat right there guys so like that one's really telegraphed and i think the episode only gets interesting at least for me after that um yeah. she, so, well, she kills yeah. him almost immediately she kills him in the first act of the episode she kills him within maybe five minutes yeah and i'm glad because like again super telegraphed and then th- things can get going because the story really, in this case, it isn't about the murder. It's about the tension of whether she's going to be discovered by his colleagues and friends who come over to the house to investigate what she's trying to pass off as, you know, an attack by a stranger. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so so I picked that one in part because it's directed by Hitchcock himself, in part because it is such an iconic story, um, and and in part because... It really gets to the heart of what I think is going on in the vast majority of Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes. Noel, you talked about neighbors killing each other. And that's certainly true that it it is a show that would make you a little anxious about getting to know your neighbors too well or about getting to know your colleagues too well. But most of Alfred Hitchcock Presents seems to me to be about husbands and wives. Mm -hmm. And specifically one of the things i tried to do when i was thinking of three episodes out of 300 to recommend i tried to look for a little variety of tone and of setting and it was really hard to find that among the episodes that were available legally so i didn't i ended up giving you three really middle class suburban households <laughs> Because I realized the harder I looked, the more it became really evident to me that that's what's that's what's at the heart of this show is the tension in what looks like an idealized household, the tension in a quiet, comfortable, suburban marriage. That's really that's really the most dangerous place to be in an Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode. Right, and I mean, this show started in what? 1955. Right, 1955. So we still have like two more years of iconic, what we think of iconic, like 50s um, idyllic sitcoms and that sort of thing. So Leave it to Beaver is like starting up in 57, so it's two years ahead of it. And so, yeah, there you go. So we're looking at like, they're, he's... Hitchcock's coming over from England with his macabre sense of humor and peeling away this veneer of American 50s idealism um, and just going like, yeah, just under the surface, it's all terrible. (laughs) And, I mean, we're seeing that with um, one of the other episodes that you recommended, which is... um, 
demortuous. Yeah, I'm, demortuous. I may be pronouncing that wrong. I never studied Latin. <laughs> no, I think that's fine. And there, oh God, Hitchcock's riff on Latin being a dead language in that opening is fantastic. Um, no, but so Demortuous gets really gets into this idea literally of someone burying something and then having to dig it up again. <laughs> and um, just how aware we are of how how much of our lives are illusions. And there's always this little seeping thing in suburbia middle class, as you were saying, Emily, that's just under the surface of something really dangerous and upsetting. Well, and even the um, even the happy homes, uh, you're not safe because an inmate from a local asylum is going to break in or uh, you're going to go off to work and your wife's going to get assaulted. And on her first day in a new town, uh, as happens in the was that the season, that's like this one of the it's, first episodes, It's the pilot episode. It's the very first episode. It's called Revenge. Revenge. It starts here a miles yeah. So yeah. like like even if you do actually have a happy marriage and together house that doesn't mean that you're safe. Right. I and and I want to go back to Demortuous because I I did choose it intentionally. I I thought about recommending it and then I looked at maybe 50 other episodes <laughs> and I circled back around to it because Fog Closing In, which stars Phyllis Thaxter, and she's one of the regular stable of Alfred Hitchcock Presents actors. I think she was in half a dozen uh, Presents episodes and then another four or five Alfred Hitchcock Hour episodes. Um, that is a very calm, comfortable, clean, middle class, upper middle class house. She talks about this big house that they have. She married her husband because he had money. Um, you know, they have all the comforts that you associate with someone who's reasonably affluent. And Demortuous is, it's a lot grubbier than either of the other two episodes. It's just, it starts out really sweaty. The The homeowner, the husband is down in the basement with a big sack of of cement and you know his friends come in they barge in and they're all sweaty and grubby but even that episode that's so full of dirt and grime and sweat even that episode the guy's a professor he's yeah. not you know he's not a day laborer he's he's definitely someone in firmly entrenched in the middle or upper middle class he's doing research on rats in his cellar um, so even when I consciously tried to find a kind of a gritty city episode, I kept kind of getting pulled back to this middle class suburbia. That's not to say that there aren't episodes of the show that are, uh, representative of, I don't know, of a more modest circumstance. There, there definitely are. Like there's, uh, there's an episode called The Kind Waitress, which is, is really fun to watch and it. It's about a waitress in a residential hotel and uh, an old woman leaves her some money in her will. And it's, it's just stinks with the desperation of wanting to have enough, just wanting to have enough to get the things that you need in life. Um, and there's, uh, there's an episode called shopping for murder. It's based on a Ray Bradbury story where it, 
two retired insurance analysts become obsessed with the idea of using actuarial data to prevent individual deaths. And they go into a tenement and they find someone who is they call a born murder victim. And she's she's poor and she's stressed and it's a loud building and the streets are noisy and it's hot and nobody has enough money. And she's also incredibly slovenly and abusive and cruel. And and so there are episodes like that, but they aren't really the iconic episodes that you might think of when you think of the show. And also they're hard to find, like they're hard to pluck out of the larger context of the series. Yeah. Yeah. The, when you, that's one of the issues when you have a show that is on the whole, very consistent, very reliable, but it has 300 episodes, 360 episodes trying to find, it's like, and I'm sure you did, Emily, but trying to scan through a list of 300 episodes to be like, which are the the indicative ones that, you know, are most going to shine from the group can be can be challenging. But the for me, what I just did was I looked down the list for actors I enjoy. Sure. I was like, there's a Peter Laurie episode watching. Oh, <laughs> did you see Man from the South? Oh, it's so good. Oh, oh I, I didn't have time to hunt that one down. I wanted to. Uh, yeah, that's a great episode. And again, that's one of the really iconic episodes that I think a lot of people think of when they do think of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. That's another Roald Dahl story. And it's mm -hmm. also another one that got recreated in the later uh, anthology series, Roald Dahl's Tales of the Unexpected. So if it seemed, if that and Lamb for the Slaughter, Lamb to the Slaughter seemed familiar to you, that might be why. Well, what I really enjoy about that one is just that Okay, I see that they've cast Peter Lorre as as you know this guy. This guy and uh, it involves a lighter, and it's called the Man from the South. So I'm like, well, clearly he's Satan. That's what the twist is gonna. And they're like, no, no, he just like likes to cut off people's fingers. <laughs> <laughs> like it's it's completely different than what I was expecting. And and some of the episodes have exactly the twist you're gonna expect, and and the the tension, like like for example, line to, to the slaughter. Um, and it's all about the tension of will they get caught and it, it puts you in the perspective of the the murderer maybe um, and then other ones it's just like nope completely we're gonna left field you yeah and I really I love that it it is so hard to know is this story going to play out as a cliche or is this story going to play out as a twist on a cliche that's part of the reason I chose fog closing in the Phyllis Thaxter episode uh, partly because it's directed by Robert Stevens, who directed more episodes than any other single director. I think he did 44 episodes himself. Uh, and partly because, again, it, I'm trying to walk a line here where I don't spoil it for your listeners, but it's hard to discuss without, without describing the situation. Uh, Phyllis Thaxter plays a woman named Mary. She is nervy and anxious and doubly so when her husband goes away on business so he buys her a gun to keep her calm and then he leaves town and she discovers a man escaped from a local mental institution has broken into her home and is hiding there and it's such a familiar situation. Now, I don't know how familiar it would have been in 1955. I don't know if escape mental patient was a cliche yet in 1955. 
it kind of feels like it had to be, right? It, it, I mean, even just on this show, I feel like, <laughs> you know, like escape from somewhere and hiding in their house. But maybe, maybe, I mean, this is only season two. Maybe it hadn't become like a staple of this show yet. It might have. There's a John Cassavetes episode where he plays an ex-convict who breaks into a farmhouse, and I think it's prior to this. I was about to say, I think lots of, plenty of B-film noir movies from the 40s involved someone breaks out of prison and gets into someone else's house, and things happen. My point is that the situation of fog closing in is such a cliche, and especially to us now, you know, 60, 70 years later, but the situation is a cliche, but the story isn't because Mary's reaction to it isn't a cliche. It's, it's very human. It's very tender and empathetic. It really surprised me, even though I had seen the episode at least a few times. I rewatched it this weekend, and I was surprised all over again by how much kinship she feels to this man who she finds cowering in her hallway, even though he is terrifying he's terrifying he tells her that he's dangerous he says that the doctors told him he does terrible things to people but that can't be true because if it were true i'd remember it and i think oh (laughs) but she doesn't think oh no she thinks oh how sad for him to be afraid and she feels He's a companion in a way that her husband can't be because her husband doesn't know what it is to be afraid. And that psychological profile is so fascinating that that seeing someone who's more scared than she is makes her feel less alone and it lets her feel strong and protective. Such an interesting twist on the idea. Yeah. Definitely. Well, and and those episodes that allow for a different perspective than maybe we would expect, I think, are the ones that come to the fore. At least it sounds like they definitely do for me and sounds like maybe that is the case for you as well, Emily. But I know that uh, even though even the episodes that are pretty much what you would expect tend to be fun. Tend, I mean, the pacing of it can be somewhat of a challenge, I think, just based on we're used to such faster television now uh, and not let's watch you know like thinking of the pilot let's watch the the housewife make a cake and we're just gonna like then we're gonna watch her sit in a chair for a little bit until the neighbor comes up and knocks on the door uh because we just wouldn't spend the time on that she'd be like bustling around and the neighbor would poke their head and we would have saved two minutes out of the the story used for something else so i think that there can be a little bit of a like a transition that you have to make mentally when you start watching uh, the series, like when you read Shakespeare or something, you have to kind of click into Shakespeare brain. Um, or like uh, if you're watching a film in a second language, that kind of a thing. Um, but once you do, once you settle into it, I do think it's it's a really it's a really fun show. Uh, if you if this is your kind of thing, I guess. And I, and I, I can definitely see why there is the longevity in the series and why there is um, how they got 360 episodes out of it. And. And why people still, you know, remember it, even if just for those really friendly, welcoming um, staples of the series. I think you're right. That when I think it's true that anytime you're watching mid-century television, there is, you have to make a transition into a different pace. 
but also in a lot of these episodes, it's very deliberately differently paced. Like Lambda the Slaughter is, there is a segment of it just after she murders her husband where everything goes very quiet. There's a big crescendo as she whacks him with the lamb, with the frozen leg of lamb. And then everything goes silent. Uh, she stops, she kneels down, she listens to see if his heart is beating. She walks around the apartment and then she sits at the kitchen table. And after a minute, she plucks a grape from the fruit bowl and eats it just staring off into space. And there's no incidental music. And it's such a bold choice. It's, it's too quiet. And it really gives room for the enormity of her impulse, space and time to sink in before she gets up and starts bustling around and making a plan all of a sudden. It really shows how impulsive and unthought through this action was that she's just wandering around in shock eating a grape right the same thing happens uh to a lesser degree because there is some music in uh one more mile to go where uh we're watching the couple argue from like outside the house basically through a window and then he like stabs her with a fire poker but, I mean, there's no dialogue, basically, until the cop pulls him over. And it's like a solid, like, seven to ten minutes of no dialogue. This guy going through the house, figuring out what he needs to get rid of the body, putting it in the trunk, loading the trunk up, and then driving away. And it's just like, who the hell has that kind of patience as an audience today, really? To be like, trust your audience to go through seven to ten minutes of no dialogue. Of a um, 25 to 30 minute show, you know? Yes, exactly. And it's just like, wow. And it's really great. And I like that you, Emily, that you mentioned just how the sound kind of falls away. Because the other thing I think is really remarkable about the show, and to keep in mind, and uh, Lamb to the Slaughter is a really good example of this. Um, the show's use of like film noir lighting, um, extreme angles, um, and uh, Chiaroscuro. And all that sort of stuff. I mean, her going into the back room to get the freezer and opening it up. It's just so beautiful and gorgeous. And I could not look away from that shot. And it just comes out of, like, nowhere. Because she's, like, backtracking into the recesses of her mind as she's going to get this primal piece of meat that then she has to lug back into this artificial life that she's been living essentially and there's just so much little things that build up aesthetically that are adding to the really solid narrative that's happening and the show is really well done in terms of as aesthetics like um i watched another episode perfect crime which is an episode with uh, vincent price as a uh, really vain um criminal profile detective type and there's just so many shots of um, low-angle shots of um, looking up at Price and the light obscuring his face just enough as he realizes his mistake and everything. And it's just, it's really well put together. And it's one of those things where I end up fetishizing black and white, black and white as a format because it just looks so good and so rich. And you can do that sort of thing and it's, it just washes over you. And for me, that kind of stuff really helps, Kate, you were talking about getting into the mind space of watching mid-century television, but also 
watching like mid-century film and going right this is how i'm expected to respond to this this is how i'm supposed to be sitting and watching this and i think that that the black and white helped me a lot and just the the really excellent use of directorial and lighting impulses helped a lot as well i i <laughs> i i ended up watching maybe 25 or 30 episodes just to refresh myself over the weekend in addition mm-hmm. to the ones that i that i picked out for you and I noticed a really interesting thing, and I don't know if it's interesting about the TV show or if it's interesting about my brain. I was watching, there's an episode starring John Williams called Back for Christmas. I don't know if that rings a bell for either of you two. No? Um, it, it, I won't, again, I won't spoil the theme of this one or the plot of this one, but there is a moment in the episode where John Williams is standing in the middle of the frame and in the in a house in a again a suburban or rural setting in a nice house and a big black shadow falls across just the sleeve of his jacket and i thought boy that's sloppy and then i paused the episode and i looked it up to see who directed this one and it was hitchcock himself and i thought okay so it isn't sloppy that's (laughs) intentional he's giving him a black armband He's, because I don't know, I don't know how familiar you are, you are with this convention, but you will have seen it in some of the episodes if you watched more than a few. Uh, when someone dies, it was traditional for men to wear a black armband, so they didn't have to invest in an entire black suit. Yeah, yeah, they're he's giving him a black armband because someone's mm-hmm. going to die now. Yeah. But I, I, I was interested by the question. If it had been a different director, would I have assumed that that was intentional or would I have thought it was just a sloppy mistake? And I right. don't know. That's something that's going to happen. I mean, television's rife with fortuitous mistakes. And you either roll with it in the editing or you don't. And yeah, so, I mean, it's a good eye to catch. But I mean, as soon as you realize that it was intentional, I mean, it just adds another layer that maybe subconsciously, if you're not looking for it, you can realize it on a rewatch. But then if you're not looking for it, then it's just something that happened. And it's a little flourish that just doesn't mean anything until you realize it later. When you're producing, I think they had 39 episodes that season. When you're producing, you know, 35 to 40 episodes a season things are moving fast your production has to keep moving so maybe if you have an incidental shadow in the shot you don't reshoot the whole take yeah no you know you just go yeah film's expensive guys we got to keep moving such are the joys of 39 episode per year television which i'm sure people who make tv now just hear that and have like night terrors yeah yeah exactly foaming at the mouth exactly And television <laughs> critics, too. Can you imagine? Oh, God, no. No. <laughs> See, you say that, but then I go, wow, that's that's a whole, like, extra half a season of fees I can charge to CBSI. Maybe, maybe we should go to that. 13 episodes of American Horror Story this season, and I was, I cried by the last one. I was exhausted. <laughs> and yeah. I will say this about the the weekly anthology series that I grew up on, like Twilight Zone and Night Gallery and Thriller and Alfred Hitchcock Presents, uh, that I think the 
seasonal anthologies that we're seeing now, things like American Horror Story and Fargo and American Crime Story. And I can't think of any other examples, but I know that they're, oh, True Detective. I know that there are at least a half a dozen high profile examples of that. I think some of these seasonal anthologies could stand to take some lessons from the weekly anthology structure that I would say American Horror Story's biggest liability right now is its inability to let characters go. Even when they die off, they get resurrected, they return as ghosts, they return in flashbacks, they return every possible way so that even death is meaningless on these shows, or at least on American Horror Story. If death can't kill off a character, there's no emotional stakes for that character, and there's no emotional tension for the viewer. But the freedom of the weekly anthology structure means because everything is starting over next week, anything can happen to these characters. Anyone can die. Anyone can go to jail. Anyone can hit a moral horizon. Anyone can make any choice. And it keeps the show so fresh that they were able to do hundreds and hundreds of very similar episodes without the audience running out of patience. And I think that's a really valuable lesson. Yeah. Well, just take, you know, do, do the, do it near a wolf style. So two main characters, three main characters that continue through the show uh, and a stable of actors you bring in to play everybody else <laughs> changing yeah. week to week. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree. Um, and I'm just glad that the anthology series is back in some form because I am a fan of them. And uh, it, was, it was lovely to dive in with, with this one and really get to explore one of the, the, big, the biggies of the, the weekly anthology series. So thank you, Emily, for coming on to talk Alfred Hitchcock Presents with us. Thank you so much. I had such a great time. I always do with you. <laughs> Where can our listeners find you when you work online? Uh, I write for the AV Club, and you can always find me on Twitter. I'm at Emily or else. Thank you once more, Emily, for coming on, and thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. 